Lucifer means Lightbringer presents the mythical astronomy of ice and fire. Sacred Order of Green Zombies Part 6 The Horned Lords Featuring Silas Thomas, San Rixian, and Ideas of Ice and Fire. And I'm your host, LML. And I'm here, rolling stag to Sacred Order of Green Zombie 6. We're representing different kind of Horn Lord, going with a little Stannis flavor, a little fiery heart, instead of the expected green Garth Horned Lord. But we're going to be talking about the fire that's inside the Weirwood Net. Azora High penetrating, burning, and corrupting the Weirwood Net. And so I thought it was appropriate. And with me, I've got the same three folks from last week. Uh, I guess I'll just uh, start. I'll start with my Hand of the Dragon this time, Sanrixian, who is with us from the beginning. Sanrixian, say hello. Hello. Hi, guys. How are y'all doing today? I am really excited to be drawing some mystical stuff that we will get into later. I'm going to leave it a mystery now until LML wants to reveal it. But Perfect. I'm happy to be here. And everything's cool. I'm not mad at Lucy or anything. Don't worry. He's my bro. <laughs> Uh, next, I've got uh, Quinn from the Ideas of Ice and Fire channel. Say hello, Quinn. Hey, dudes. What's up? It's good to be here. I'm um, not going to talk that much this episode because my voice is a little bit tired. So, yeah. I wore, I wore him out uh, with demanding, uh, demanding audio performances all week. So uh, Silas is actually going to what, – what we're going to do is Silas is going to read the quotes today and we're going to save Quinn's voice for a little bit of commentary uh, but we are still happy to have you, Quinn, and we appreciate you soldiering through uh, to join us today. And, of course, like I just said, Silas Toms, Loki, pre- Loki president, Gods of Terror blog. Say hello. Thanks for joining us. How y'all us. doing today? Woo! <laughs> and the crowd goes wild. They're going wild in the woo, chat. Silas, woo! <laughs> I can get used to that. <laughs> Yes, well, we thank you for joining us once again. Um, we are going further into the woods with this Old Ones theory, so I've got some exciting fodder for discussion today. We're going to get about two-thirds of the way through, and then I'm going to drop a bomb, and I'm going to let everyone talk about it. And uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to agree a little bit with a very old video that Quinn did, so that'll be fun. We'll, uh, we'll get to that. But yes, today is a very exciting day. We are talking about the old ones again. And just real quick, I'll, I'll give us like a three-minute summary of, of what, we, uh, what we did. Actually, you know what? Before we did that, before we do that, let's uh, I'm gonna make a couple of announcements. I've, I've got a couple, actually. So, sorry, I'm kind of excited to talk about the Horned Gods. But we, did, uh, we hit uh, 10,000 subscribers on the Lucifer Means Lightbringer YouTube channel this past week. Thank you, thank you. I see the soft, soft applause there. It's appropriate. So thanks, everyone, who has subscribed and who's shared the channel, 
shared the word, all that stuff, liked the videos, come to the streams. Thank you. Onward and upward. Uh, we are at 10,000, and I think we have lots of room to grow because, honestly, we the attendance that we get at these live streams is you know, equivalent to channels that have a lot more subscriptions. Uh, so that tells me that we've got a lot of room to grow. So I don't know exactly how far uh, long conversations about mythology will go in the world. I didn't think they'd go this far. So uh, I'm excited and I'm happy to keep pushing and see what happens. So uh, big announcement here. Mythheads are covering Game of Thrones season eight this year. Uh, I have not really covered it at all in the past. I've gone on other people's channels and talked about it. Um, but this year we are going to cover it. We as Mythheads. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to turn. And remember, there's only seven episodes. Is it six or seven? I think it's seven. It's seven, I think. Yeah. Seven. So there's only seven episodes this week. So for those seven, or this season, so for those seven weeks, we're going to take our normal three o'clock Eastern hour, and we're going to turn it into a pregame show. We're going to go two hours or less, because at five o'clock Eastern, In Deep Geek is doing his pregame show. And so what we'll do is sort of a handoff thing, and I don't think we'll need more than two hours for that. And then here's the really exciting part. We are going to throw our hat in the ring for doing a post-game show. And there is a few post-game shows. Uh, Smokescreen's got the famous one, of course. He does a great show. Um, Azor Hype, our friend Kyle, uh, he's got a post-game show with J.R. Rowley from Geek Chad and Secrets of the Citadel. Um, So that's happening. But what we're going to do is we're going to do basically kind of a short, quick reactions post-game show. Right after the show's over, we're not going to even wait a minute. Uh, We're going to go live, maybe just go like an hour, and it'll be, you know, me and the myth heads. It'll be whoever is around and available, and it'll also include people like Quinn and Silas. You're uh, you're welcome. I haven't officially invited you, but I am now officially inviting you. Um, Gray Gray Area said she's willing to drop in. Aziz willing to drop in. Joe Magician, Bookshelf Stud, as well as, you know, folks like Emma Smith and Crow Food's daughter and Melanie. Uh, and of course, San Rick's in. Uh, and so essentially, I'm not sure who will be there. Also, Bronze Steries will be joining us uh, on some of these panels as well. Bronze Steries, the wise old dragon. So essentially, what we'll do is we'll give the quick reactions right after the show, we'll go for about an hour. And then during the week, we'll rewatch and come up with some you know, deeper analysis. And of course, we'll be looking at uses of symbolism and mythology and magic and we'll have an eye towards the implications for the book because you know we myth heads are definitely book fans first i think so we're not going to cover the show exactly like everyone else we'll, we'll cover it in our own myth head sort of centric fashion but what it'll be is you know we'll, we'll we'll rewatch it during the week and then the next week when we do the pregame show we'll also have like more thoughts that we had from last week deeper analysis as well as what we expect to happen this week so it'll be fun and, you know, we figure uh, might as well have fun with it. It's the last season. There should be lots of fireworks. They're going to take all the armies and smash them together. Uh, and, you know, we won't necessarily put a rose on everything. We'll be critical if we need to be. But for the most part, we'll probably have fun with it. Um, we'll have Quinn on to be, uh, to be extra critical. Because, uh, uh, Quinn, that's what you're good at, right? Hating on the show? Yeah, I'm just te- And nothing else. Oh, that's not true. It's oh. well, no, Quinn. It's mostly true. Quinn is very entertaining when he hates on the show, though. So I mean, that's the—that's what they say in the comments. Like, ah, this is all you do is hate on the show. 
It's like they oh, say. Oh, no. You know, your theory videos and your excellent <laughs> and Dune all analysis. The other stuff that I do. I make like one Game of Thrones video a month. Uh, so the thing is, uh, Viseria, I see people asking about a post-show on Mondays. There's lots of other people that are going to be going during the week. Um, History of Westeros is going to have a, have a thing during the week. And, uh, you know, Gray Area will be putting out videos. In Deep Geeks got a bunch of stuff during the week. There'll be lots of people doing stuff during the week. So I am going to keep my weeks clear so that I can catch up on some of the mythical astronomy work i'm like behind in audio editing and i got to catch up with patreon names and all this stuff so i will enjoy the seven weeks off of scripted episodes and basically we'll just be doing live stuff on sunday and having fun and if you watch guys if you watch the show on a delay you could just watch our reaction show on a delay too right afterwards so it is what it is but there'll be plenty of live streams to get involved and i'll be popping up on other people's streams you know i'll be on history of westeros a couple times and There'll be plenty of plenty of times to hang out with everybody. So don't worry about your scheduling. There's going to be lots of coverage, guys. Lots of coverage. So that's that. We'll be covering the show. It'll be fun. I'm looking forward to seeing you all there. And uh, Quinn, yeah, where what where are your subs on YouTube? Are you hitting a milestone here? Are you close to a milestone? Um, last time I checked, I'm at like 130,000. So I guess the next milestone is 150. Damn. Damn, dude. 10,000 points for House Quentin. Well, you certainly certainly deserve all that kind of success, man. You've been going at it for a while and making just amazingly high-quality videos. So, cheers, Cheers, man. Cheers. Cheers. All right. So, I see the chat reacting to that. It looks, everyone looks excited. Uh, So, yeah, lots of, lots of fun, fun stuff. I personally like going on live right after the show. There's a lot of excitement after the show. People like talking about it right after it happens. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. I think it'll be good. And uh, like I said, it'll just be a quick reactions thing. So I think Azora Hype was saying like in his uh, in his live show after the after the show, he was getting like 800, 900 viewers. So I think there'll be even more attention this year. And of course, Smokescreen gets tons. So There'll be lots of people. It'll be it'll be kind of crazy. I bet we might even make some new myth friends. We uh, we will make some new myth friends. That's essentially what we'll be doing is drawing in more people into our myth head crowd because you gotta you gotta we have fresh community. blood, you know. Yeah. We are so community. That's totally. our brand. Totally. And I will say that you're gonna enjoy Bronsteri's uh, the analysis of Bronsteri's The Wise. He is very tuned in in the show. Rewatches it a lot. Uh, and he thinks that D&D are, in fact, putting some nods into some of the deeper book theories, like things like the Green Sea, Under the Sea. He thinks that they're, they're playing with that. So does uh, Ravenous Reader. So his viewpoint will essentially be the um, D&D know about the deeper mythology in the books and are putting nods into it. I kind of like want to believe, but I'm skeptical. If you guys remember when we had the God's Eye episode that I did with Aziz after they did all those cave paintings that look exactly like the God's Eye Eclipse and they got the others in the long night and lots of planets and astronomy. Like I pretty I got pretty excited thinking that maybe they were gonna give us eclipses or meteors in the show. But then they sort of had the others break through the wall and invade. And we haven't had even anything really even hide the sun yet. So I don't know if they're gonna do that or if they were just teasing us. Uh but in any case you Oh, I was going to say, um, in the, remember, in as Alt-Shift X pointed out in the episode where he had a shout out to you, um, he was mentioning the trailer for season eight with the Obsidian when the ice and fire collide. 
So I have a lot of hope and maybe I'm just being optimistic, but I'm really excited. Well, it'll be fun to ride that roller coaster and I'll remain pessimistic, but cautiously hopeful. So we'll see. We'll see if, if Bron Steri's, uh, is right and we get more uh, wish fulfillment for ourselves or, or what. So, And with that said, let us... Uh, okay, so I'm going to give you the quick summary of last week in case there's anybody tuning in that didn't see last week. This is going to be really quick. Basically, uh, the old ones are the green men. And when we go around and look in the, in the books, we find all these uses of the phrase old ones, uh, which seem to refer to the green men. For example... There was the line that said, you know, Ned's gods were the old ones, uh, the lost gods of the Greenwood, the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood that he shared with the children of the forest. And so then you go on scene after scene, and we're pulling these quotes about the old ones. There's one uh, where the jailer, the jailer's name was Garth at the at White Harbor, and it said the old one was Garth, which is basically the theory in a nutshell that basically Martin's playing with this Lovecraftian idea of the old ones, which are these sort of vanished gods. And sort of tying that into the lore and mythology of the green men, who basically seem to be the first green seers. And so essentially the old gods of the Weirwoods that we think about as the hive mind of green seers as being mostly children of the forest. My theory is that essentially the first green seers were actually green men who might be related to the children of the forest. Uh, They probably are, I would say. So that's essentially the summary. And with that, you should be ready to follow along. So welcome to Sacred Order of Green Zombies 6, The Horned Lords. Hello there, friends, patrons, and fellow mythheads. We are six episodes deep into the Green Zombie series here, so I'm not going to beat around the bush. We're going to dive right in. And having just met the real green men in the last episode, it's time to start sacrificing them. That's right. Sununos may be a handsome stag boy, but... He is fated to die. Silas, take it away. Few of the very oldest tales of Garth Grehan present us with a considerably darker deity, one who demanded blood sacrifice from his worshippers to ensure a bountiful harvest. In some stories, the green god dies every autumn when the trees lose their leaves, only to be reborn with the coming of spring. This version of Garth is largely forgotten. So, Sir Nunos... The original stag man, the horned god, he specifically dies every autumn. And of course, the related oak and holly king mythology, which divides the horned god into winter and summer brothers, essentially, revolves around one stag man brother killing the other every six months to sort of make the seasons turn. This is simply a depiction of the way that nature seems to die in the fall, or perhaps you might say it loses its green. Thus the horned god, who in all his forms is an embodiment of the forest and the virility of nature, tends to kick the bucket as late autumn and winter comes calling. Of course, all hope is not lost, because we know winter doesn't last forever, and nature's green mojo will be back with springtime. Unless, of course, you live in Westeros, and winter simply doesn't go away. Then, instead of green men returning to life in the spring, dee-dee-dee-dee, We get all manner of messed up zombies and white walkers and shit. The white walkers are so bad in this kind of cold, sunless environment that it turns out people actually ended up rooting for their own zombie heroes to save the day. That is, of course, according to the Green Zombies theory on which this series is based. You'll recall that 
Nature psychomythology is really what helps to put George's extensive use of zombies in context. Since the big evil of the story is a winter and a night that will not end, George figures that it makes sense to play with the green man mythology in dark and twisted ways. Our heroes are resurrected green men, just like real-world folklore, but since they're resurrected in the winter, before their appointed time in the spring, they come back as sort of messed-up green zombie night's watchmen. People like Cold Hands, or even a little bit like Barrick. It's not necessarily a pretty picture. We're all waiting to see what it will be like for John in the books, of course, but we know it figures to be a lot different and a lot darker than the Jon Snow from the HBO show, don't you know? And that's the good guys. The enemy, the ancient icy enemy known as the Others and their army of the undead, well, they are very much monsters who are tailored to the setting in which they appear. Cold white shadows which emerge from the dark of the wood, which George R. R. Martin refers to as icy she. They have always read like the darkest instincts of the woods come to life, like pissed-off elves turned ice and snow and bad intent. The whites, on the other hand, are the logical symptom of a night and a winter which will not end. If the cycle of the seasons and the cycles of day and night are stuck, well, then natural life and death cycles figure to be disrupted as well. And since night and winter correspond to the death part of the life cycle, we get unnatural death to go along with unnatural winter and an unnatural Eternal Nighttime, The Army of the Living Dead. And one of the mysteries about all of this is that both the Others and my theorized Green Zombie Night's Watchmen are tied to the Weirwoods. The Green Zombies are tied to the Weirwoods because every scene which reenacts the Green Zombie ritual has a Weirwood symbol at its heart. And most occurrences of the Last Hero math, which is, of course, 12 plus 1 for the Last Hero and his 12 companions, contain a Weirwood symbol as well. We can also deduce this from the available information about the last hero. Old Nan tells Bran that it is at some point after he loses his companions that he receives help from the children of the forest. And then in the world of ice and fire, we learn that the maesters have recorded that... Thanks to the children, the first men of the Night's Watch banded together and were able to fight and win the battle for the dawn, the last battle that broke the endless winter and sent the others fleeing to the icy north. So Sam also reads in the records of the Night's Watch at Castle Black that the children used to give the men of the Night's Watch dragonglass knives. And we also know that before the Andals came to Westeros, pretty much all of the original Night's Watchmen would have worshipped the old gods and therefore would have sworn their oaths to a weirwood tree, just as John and Sam did. And according to the Green Zombies theory, this swearing of the Night's Watch oath to a heart tree would actually have been part of the original resurrection ritual as the newly resurrected green zombie essentially swears the life he's just been given back to the green seers in the weirwoods, the people who just gave him back that life, or unlife. So as you can see, the first Night's Watch received help from the children of the forest, and the first Night's Watch was presumably led by the last hero, who also received help from the children of the forest. So if the green zombies did exist, then they would basically owe their unlives to the magic of the green seers and the weirwoods. Now, the others, on the other hand, are also called the White Walkers of the Wood, and they seem to come out of the trees to emerge from the dark of the wood, as it were. We've been investigating the others throughout more than two compendiums, and for a long time now, their symbolism has been seeming to suggest the others as having somehow been evicted from the Weirwood Net. 
Lately in the Signs and Portals series, we've seen a variation of this theory emerge, which is that there may have been some sort of partition drawn across the original Weirwood Net, with the others essentially being exiled to the frozen side of the Green Sea of the Green Seers, much as the wall effectively exiles the wildlings from the rest of Westeros. Both eviction theories are similar, and at the core is the idea that Azor High seems to have forced his way into what we call the Weirwood Net, and that this somehow resulted in the casting out or eviction of the others from the Weirwood Net, either from the Weirwood Net altogether or on, you know, exiled to their side of it. Thus, we have Black Brothers and White Others, both named as Watchers and both named as Shadows, repeatedly. They've always seemed like mere images of one another, and the Green Zombies theory points at a common origin for both, the Weirwoods. So today, we are going to shed some very exciting illumination on these mysteries. We'll be proceeding as we were when we left off in Green Zombies 5, which is reading all of the quotes that contain the phrase, Old Ones, and looking for symbolism which matches the other Old Ones scenes that we've looked at, and also the Horned Lord mythology at the root of it all, Garth the Green, the Green Men, and the secrets of the Isle of Faces and the War for the Dawn. The Old One scenes that we'll look at today will give us a lot of fresh ammo to consider as we try to suss out how all this got started, and how it is that the Weirwoods seem to stand at the junction of ice and fire magic, of brothers and others. All right, so that's the first, that's my little intro section. Silas, thoughts? Loving it. Yeah, I, I I think the Horn Man are the key to the whole thing, uh, obviously, and uh, the intersection of uh, Norse and um, Lovecraftian myth that you've called out here. It's really smart because uh, I think Lovecraft already was tucking in a lot of no- uh, Norse myth to begin with. I think uh, that's where he got a lot of his ideas from. You know, uh, Serunos is basically incorporated directly in. And a couple of uh, the other Norse gods as well. So, yeah, loving it. Nice. And Quinn, um, as I mentioned, you know, one of the first, definitely the first video I saw from you, and one of the first videos that made an impression on me when I started looking at videos about A Song of Ice and Fire was your video about the others as Icy She. Uh, so give me a couple minutes on that and, and your thoughts on that based on what I've just been talking about, specifically the idea of the others being evicted from the Weirwood Net. So the others being, okay. So George R. R. Martin based the conflict of the Children of the Forest and the First Men um, somewhat on pseudo-Irish mythology that involves the Aishi versus the Milesians who represent mankind who came across the sea from Iberia. And so um, in that mythology, the she do things like create storms to prevent them from coming and they use magic against them and stuff like that. Basically, the she are uh, the nature spirits and they live in trees. Basically, they protect nature. They fight for nature. And uh, that story is really similar. And in the end of it, basically what happens is they split the world and the I, she get uh, the underworld and then mankind get the outer world or something like that basically make a split that's similar to what happens in a song of ice and fire um but what's interesting though is the idea of quinn if i could just jump in real quick i mean that's the partition theory right there i mean i hadn't actually i kind of knew that i don't know my norse myth that well um 
uh, and my Irish folklore, which is, I guess, related. Sorry, I'm misspeaking. Irish folklore, I know even less, really. I'm just learning it from other people um, and a little bit of Wikipedia. But that now that I hear you say that again, I mean, that is the partition idea exactly. This is the others being exiled, not just north of the wall, but like to their own side of the weirwood net. So that's pretty cool. But go ahead. But yeah, I was just going to bring it back to that. I, I was going to say it's interesting that you that you I like the way that you talk about the weirwood net as kind of like this kind of like uh, what's the word just kind of like um, an ethos of just all these different consciousnesses and different things can inhabit it. And it doesn't just belong to like one group or entity. You know what I'm saying? Like anything can join it. But it's interesting. Yeah, it's a real exciting idea. I began to notice it when we began to pick up signs of a battle inside the Weirwood Net. And actually here, I'll give a little bit of credit to the show. Um, The first time I saw Night Night King confront Bran inside the Weirwood Net, essentially, inside the Weirwood Dream, I kind of, hey, look, we got John Walsh guitar. Hey, John, that's our resident flamenco guitarist, who is, yeah, that's nice of him to drop by. That's cool, man. He, I know he's been catching up on some back episodes after like sort of getting busy with real life. Uh, so yeah, uh, he's, he's he's excited. We're talking about his. He's from Ireland, so he says uh, there are trees in every country here, Ireland, that landowners will not cut down because of superstition tradition that they are fairy trees. Yeah, I wouldn't fucking cut down a fairy tree either, man. <laughs> that's a that's a good way to get some others haunting your dreams, and that's. That's, I mean, that's kind of the whole thing about nature spirits and Sir Nunos is that they're not all like happy forest elves. Like if you, if you encroach or harm or cut down trees and stuff, they will, they will be vengeful. They will cut your ass. They will sacrifice your ass to the gods and whatnot. So that's a big component of what we're going to talk about today, actually. So thanks, Quinn. There's, there's more. We, we probably could make some hay by exploring that whole Fomorian's ice she uh, kind of thing and, and applying it to some of uh, what we've done. But, uh, you know, let's do the episode that we have today and we'll circle back with that another time. And by the way, guys, the John Walsh YouTube channel is super easy to find. Just put in John Walsh guitar. If you don't add the guitar, you'll get the America's most wanted John Walsh. And that's not what you're looking for. All right, let is read, let's read some Patreon names and cue up some spooky music. Did he have antlers? This next section is brought to you by the earthly avatars of the Twelve Houses of Heaven. Dyrlis, the Alpha Patron, a descendant of Gilbert of the Vines and Garth the Green, earthly avatar of Heavenly House Aquarius. Lord Leobold the Victorious, the Fire Lion of Lancasterly Rock, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Leo. Turin the Elf, Tavern Keep of the Wine Spring Inn, Master of the Abyss, Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Cancer. And Durin Durandin, the Redfish Bluefish, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Pisces, whose eyes are ruby and sapphire, and whose sword is pale fire. And Outer Panda, the Pan Doubter. The man in the mirror, man, and earthly avatar of Heavenly House Gemini. So, did he have antlers? The wall is a major site of Old One's activity, which stands to reason, since the green zombies are tied to the Night's Watch and the wall. 
The wall is also in the class of ancient, unexplained mysteries of Westeros. Is it possible that? This list also includes places like the Isle of Faces, Storm's End, Battle Isle, Moat Kalen, and the Winterfell Crypts. And if there's a lost race of antlered green men on the Isle of Faces, it may be that they had something to do with some of these other mysteries, particularly those tied to the War for the Dawn and the Night's Watch. Many of these places are also linked to Bran the Builder, it should be noted. Now, we've already seen John speak of praying to the Old Ones while manning Castle Black against the Magnar of Thin and his invading wildlings. And in case you forgot, the line there was, Pray then, John told him. Pray to your new gods, and I'll pray to my old ones. We're going to come back to that chapter and that battle at Castle Black a bit later today, because there are other Old Ones sightings there. But to start, let's have a look at what may be my very favorite Old Ones quote. At least, after that, the Old One was Garth Line from the Wolf's Den at White Harbor, which really can't be beat, since that's basically my Old Ones theory in a nutshell. The Old Ones were Garth people. Cousins of Cernunos. Horny folk. This one, however, is nearly as good, because it includes talk of cold hands and the green men. Was he green? Bran wanted to know. Did he have antlers? The fat man was confused. The elk? Cold hands, said Bran impatiently. The green men ride on elks, old man used to say. Sometimes they have antlers, too. He wasn't a green man. He wore blacks like a brother of the watch, but he was pale as a white with hands so cold that at first I was afraid. The whites have blue eyes, though, and they don't have tongues, or they've forgotten how to use them. The fat man turned to Jojen. He'll be waiting. We should go. Do you have anything warmer to wear? The black gate is cold, and the other side of the wall is even colder. You... Why didn't he come with you? Mira gestured towards Gilly and her babe. They came. They came with you. Why not him? Why didn't you bring him with you through this black gate, too? He... He can't. Why not? The wall. The wall is more than just ice and stone, he said. There are spells woven into it. Old ones and strong. He cannot pass beyond the wall. Grew very quiet in the castle kitchen then. Bran could hear the soft crackle of the flames, the wind stirring the leaves in the night, the creak of skinny weirwood reaching for their moon. Beyond the gates, the monsters live, and, at the, and the giants and the ghouls, he remembered old Nan saying, but they cannot pass so long as the wall stands strong. So go to sleep, my little Bran, my little baby boy. You needn't fear. There are no monsters here. I'm not the one you were told to bring, Jojen Reed told Fat Sam and his stained and baggy blacks. He is. So, the spells woven into the wall, presumably during its creation, are old ones. This is one of the deep mysteries of the story, the origins of the wall. Its building is attributed to everyone from the first men, to the children of the forest, to the giants, to perhaps even the others themselves. But it might have something to do with the old ones, who are the green men. Were these spells made by the Green Men, or perhaps made with the power of the Green Men? Another factor to consider here is blood magic, which is said to be, and appears to be, the most powerful type of magic in this universe. That's the A Song of Ice and Fire universe, not our actual universe, of course. Uh, Ygritte says that, although, yeah, blood magic is very powerful, let me just tell you. Uh, Ygritte says the wall is made of blood. So there's definitely a possibility that powerful blood magic was used in its making. In fact, I'd actually say that it's more than a possibility. 
When Ygritte says, you know nothing, Jon Snow, it's essentially as good as something coming from Old Nan, I think. And when she turns to Jon and utters the ominous words, this wall is made of blood, I think we're supposed to regard that as a glimpse at the deep truth of the wall. Given that sacrificial death is such a big part of Cernunos lore and Garth lore, it's possible that the Old One's magic used here at the wall involved blood magic, either green men performing sacrifices or being sacrificed themselves. Then we have the fact that the person telling us about these Old One spells is Cold Hands, who rides an elk like a green man, but is dead. He's been sacrificed. Altogether, the clues here seem to point to blood magic involving the green men, perhaps even the sacrifice of green men. Now, when we speak of green men, ritual sacrifice, and powerful magic, we have to think of the stories of powerful blood magic being performed on the Isle of Faces to call down the hammer of the waters, especially since we see this weirwood reaching for the moon and trying to pull it down into the well right after the talk of the green men and the spells of the old ones. If I'm right about the hammer of the waters being a moon meteor impact, and I am right, hopefully, then a weirwood reaching for the moon with wooden fingers makes a lot of sense. It's a symbolic depiction of green seer magic being used to reach up and break the moon, something which seems to have been fueled with blood magic any way you slice it. So consider the hammer of the waters myth alongside the Azor Ahai myth. The Azor Ahai myth shows us the blood magic killing of Nissa Nissa having the power to break the moon, and we think Nissa Nissa was an elf woman, a woman with either the blood of the children of the forest or the green men. The classic Hammer of the Waters legend, on the other hand, shows us green seers sacrificing either captive humans or their own young to drop the hammer. And the line there was, A thousand captive men were fed to the weirwood, one version of the tale goes, whilst another claims the children used the blood of their own young. But if the hammer was a moon meteor, then breaking the moon and dropping the hammer are the same thing, the same act. And look, both things are accomplished with blood magic ritual sacrifice, quite possibly the killing of what we might call elves, either children of the forest or green men. As I've said before, I suspect that the green seers who dropped the hammer by breaking the moon were not children of the forest. I believe they were green men, the old ones. Just as Robert, the horn god, runs around like a horny garth, swinging a giant hammer. It's called a clue, people. The horned lords dropped the hammer. But the twist may be that they themselves might not have dropped the hammer, but rather might have been sacrificed by Azor Ahai to break the moon. Just as the legend shows Azor Ahai sacrificing Nissa Nissa to break the moon. Nissa Nissa may not have been the only elf killed by Azor Ahai. One thinks of the parallel myth of Brandon of the Bloody Blade who was implied as either killing or impregnating many children of the forest and giants near Red Lake. Azor Ahai may have slaughtered the green men in order to gain access to their trees, with Nissa Nissa's sacrifice being the capstone of some sort of extremely dark ritual. An important parallel here may be the killing of Renly, dressed in his glorious and garth-like green stagman armor when he was slain, because he was slain by a shadow version of Stannis, who is a dark Azor High figure. That scene has a lot of long night imagery, with all the candles blowing out and Renly's last word being cold. Renly's death gains Stannis the army of the Reach and a stronger claim of kingship, which matches the idea of Azor High gaining power by killing green men. 
Stannis's dream projection penetration of Renly's green tent, the magical castle alive with light, can be seen as Azor Ahai's penetration and corruption of the Weirbanet. And again, we see that killing green stagmen is an important part of this. Another relevant parallel would be the Ironborn King Euron Redhand. Red hand is a weirwood symbol because of their blood-red hand-shaped leaves, and indeed King Redhand is caught red-handed by history as having won his crown by killing 13 captive kings and 50 priests inside of Naga's ribs, which are really made of weirwood. Naga's ribs function as a kind of weirwood grove here, and the ribs are even said to have run red with the blood of the slain. So taken together with the red hands thing, there is strong evocation of weirwood sacrifice here. The last hero math in this context is a nearly irresistible symbol. And our murderer, Euron, well, he has a name which links to Euron Crozai and Eurathon Nightwalker of Karth, who might be Euron's alter ego, actually. And both of those characters seem to fit the evil Azor High mold. I mean, we know Euron Crozai does, and Eurathon Nightwalker is known for his glass candles, which are Valerian sorcery. Put it together, and you have evil Azor High slaughtering 13 people with special blood, call it king's blood or whatever you want, inside of a functional weirwood grove. Something like this may well have went down at the Isle of Faces, either in connection to the blood magic that broke the moon, or the green zombie ritual, which would have come a bit later. We've yet to sort all that out. Another parallel leaps to mind here. Daemon Targaryen carving the Weirwood Heart Tree in the Harrenhal Godswood, which is right by the Isle of Faces, with 13 last hero math slashes of Dark Sister. If you recall, he was waiting for um, Aemond One-Eye to show up and fight him, basically. And while he was waiting, he carved one slash in the Heart Tree every day. So there's 13 slashes on that Weirwood still that bleed every spring, supposedly. So that's pretty good stuff. You've got an Azor High figure, giving a last hero math and a face carving. And it's got a Lightbringer symbol in Dark Sister. And of course, this is right before he goes and fights a Knight's King figure, Aemond One-Eye, riding a dragon above the God's Eye Lake in the Isle of Faces. So that kind of seems like something there. <laughs> I, would, I would say that's basically the last hero, you know, raising that his zombies, his group of 13, and then going to face the Knight's King. That's what that smells like to me. So another possibility is that when Azor Ahai killed Nissa Nissa and forced his way into the Weirwood Net, he quote-unquote killed the green men in a less literal sense by killing or altering their spirit home. Azor Ahai symbolically set the Weirwoods on fire when he invaded, which may have effectively killed the green men old one spirits that reside in the Weirwood Net. Or it may have driven them out. More on that later. In Stannis's killing of Renly, Renly might represent the Weirwoods as a whole just as the green man, or Cernunos, represents nature as a whole, and murdering Renly might simply represent Azor Ahai penetrating, burning, and corrupting the pristine green sea that existed before he came. I've speculated that before Azor Ahai's invasion, those bonded to the weirwood trees might have been able to do so in a more quote-unquote natural way, one which may not even have involved carving horrible bloody faces into the trees, and essentially, according to my thinking, uh, hollowing out the consciousness of the weirwood trees so that humans can live inside. That's, that's what I think is happening, which kind of makes the weirwoods like white trees, W-I-G-H-T white trees, almost like a hollowed-out zombie. Now, this speculative older form of green seer weirwood bond 
might have been more like the classic setup between a tree and a dryad, or like the ice she and their their mounds, for example. And I'm picturing the green men as this older form of natural green seer. I mean, they do live on the Isle of Faces with only weirwoods for company, so it would be weird if the green men didn't have any ability to use their magic. It'd also be very boring if they couldn't access the weirwood net. They'd, they'd basically have nothing to do. But in any case, it stands to reason that a Cernunos-like stagman creature would play a role like this, as that is the classic role of Cernunos and the other horned gods. They're the protectors of the forest, even an avatar of the forest itself. Garth the Green planted weirwoods at Highgarden, after all, and the descendants of his firstborn son, the powerful kings of House Gardener, ruled from atop a throne of living oak, the oaken seat. So it sounds like Garth had a pretty strong relationship with weirwoods. Now, speaking of House Gardener, I will briefly mention that this oldest and proudest line of Garth the Green was burned from the fabric of existence by Aegon, Rhaenys, and Visenya at the Field of Fire, an act which greatly helped to win Aegon his throne. In fact, it was the burnt swords from the Field of Fire, as well as Harrenhal, which went into the making of the Iron Throne. So, once again, we have an Azor High dragon figure gaining power and kingship, literally making his throne through the slaughter of green men. And the armies of the Reach uh, essentially count as green men in this in this instance. So in somewhat similar fashion, the oaken seed of House Gardener was chopped up and burned by a Dornish king during the rule of Garth X, and Highgarden itself was also burned. So that's a lot of burning the weirwood net symbolism right there. The old and feeble-witted Garth X was found tied to his bed by the Dornish, which is awesome green seer symbolism. He's old and feeble and tied to his bed just like Blood Raven is pinioned to the weirwood roots. Uh, and then his throat was cut, which completes the Garth sacrifice symbolism to go along with the burning of the oaken seat and high garden. So that's pretty clear symbolism, right? Sacrificing green men, setting the weirwood net on fire. They are simultaneous actions. So then returning to Bran's scene with Sam at the night fort where we started, consider again the importance of the presence of cold hands in this scene that talks about green men and the spells of the old ones since Cold Hands checks out as both a green man figure, riding elks and talking to the birds and protecting the forest and being allied with the children of the forest, but he also happens to be an undead Night's Watchman. I've suggested before that the pact between the children of the forest and the first men, which was supposedly signed after the Hammer of the Waters fell, is actually where the Night's Watch was formed. The legendary history, of course, has the Hammer and the pact taking place thousands of years before the Long Night, but, as I was just saying, the idea that the hammer was a moon meteor called down at the time of the Long Night necessitates a rewrite of this timeline, which I think makes a ton of sense. Ergo, the pact would still have been signed shortly after the fall of the Hammer of the Waters, but that's now happening during the Long Night. As I like to point out, it makes sense for the pact to be signed during the Long Night because that's exactly when the first men would have been desperate enough to yield to the children give up their own gods, and adopt the gods of the children, despite having previously outmatched the children of the forest. Plus, we already know that during the Long Night, the children were said to be involved in the formation of the Night's Watch, and that they helped the last hero. So there's an awful lot of partnership and alliance going on between the humans and the children of the forest during the Long Night anyway. So again, this, to me, this makes sense for a time 
uh, to sign the pact. So according to this thinking, the pact would essentially represent the formation of the Night's Watch. And this would probably be when the resurrection of the Green Zombie Night's Watchmen through the use of Green Seer magic took place. The pact was said to take place on the Isle of Faces and involved the carving of the faces into all the weirwood trees and the formation of the Sacred Order of the Green Men, which, quite honestly, already sounds like a green zombie resurrection party as it is. To put it simply, the Isle of Faces is a great place to create the first Green Zombie Night's Watch, whether or not this was the same thing as the Sacred Order of Green Men or something separate. I mean, you know how tangled all this history gets. It could be that the Green Men were always on the Isle of Faces and that it was actually the Green Zombie Night's Watch which was formed on the Isle of Faces when the pact was signed. Now, I want to make sure everyone is clear about the supposed legendary events at the Isle of Faces, as this can get confusing. There are, again, supposedly, two different events. There's the sacrifice of either captive humans or children of the forest to call down the hammer of the waters, and then later, sometime shortly after, we had the signing of the pact, where the face carving was done. Here's the thing, though. Bloodraven says that the purpose of carving a face on a weirwood tree is to enable a new green seer to see out of those eyes. And there are some clues that awakening a new heart tree might involve blood sacrifice. So you kind of have to wonder if maybe the face carving and the massive ritual sacrifice happened at the same time, or at the least that these two events may be linked. Maybe they happened right after another, one another. So consider this. According to the legend... The green seers were feeding captive to the weirwood on the Isle of Faces to drop the hammer before they carved faces on the trees. But doesn't it make more sense to give the trees faces and then feed them sacrifices? I mean, I don't know. Let me let me pause here and get some opinions. Silas, what do you think about this? Uh, my rewrite of the timeline here. Uh, I'm still, yeah, very unclear about the. Uh the Isle of Faces, you know, it's, uh, to me, um, I can't tell if they're waiting like for the next event uh, and they've been placed there forever basically. Or if like the whole thing uh, about the pack depends on them being there. Uh, and I, I, I'm still confused about it. So, uh, you could convince me of anything, I think, with them because they're so, um, they're so, you know, it's so hard to tell, basically. Well, here's here. Let me incorporate some more. Um, okay, and yeah, Jojo Lady Dane is also mentioning that there are also legends of the Hammer of the Waters being called down from Moat Kalen. So that's probably another thing worth clarifying. Um, th- there are two different stories that we get about where the hammer was called down from in the books proper at, initially we're told that the children called it down from moat Kalen, the children's tower at moat Kalen. it's not until the world of ice and fire that it says the green seers gathered to call down the hammer some say on the isle of faces so essentially some people think there are two different hammer events which i do not think is the case um, but you can understand how some people would come to that opinion um, because maybe they broke the arm of Dorne, calling it down from the Isle of Faces. They fought a bit, retreated a bit, and then they tried again to break the neck. And, you know, it's the same idea, but just, you know, further back, essentially. So maybe that, that, that does make a certain amount of sense. And, of course, I could be wrong about my theory. Um, but essentially, what I think is that 
uh, it was called down probably from the Isle of Faces, and that there's something else that happened at Moat Kalen uh, that's sort of getting mixed up in all this. I mean, Moat Kalen sticks out like a sore thumb. It looks like a squisher palace, like Yin from Sothorios or something. I mean, it compares very well to Yin, honestly. Yeah, big blocks laying around. And it's also confusing to me, too, because there's three towers, right? So you've probably, if it's symbolic of like a pact between magical people and, and, and humans, then you've got the children's tower, you've got the, the drunkard's tower, right? And then there's the other one, I think. So did you have three different groups occupying three different towers that were fighting against something else? Uh, you know, it, it's very interesting to me. And also like how the it's right at the neck, which got submerged from the hammer of the waters. So it, it, it definitely um, is connected to some ancient battle. You know what I mean? Uh, I think like one big battle and I can't tell if like that's, I, I don't think it's between the children and the humans. I think the humans and the children were working together against something else. Is my guess. Yeah. And I think, I think that um, essentially the, the reason that makes me think this is all one event is because when you look at the Iron Islands, we find all this really heavy sea dragon symbolism, you know, fractured land, you know, fa- meteors falling into the water, all that stuff. Um, and the Iron Islands is really close to the neck. So t- to me, what I'm seeing is like, you know, if the, if the moon fractured or broke or anything like that, we're going to get more than one meteor, probably more like a storm of swords, if you will. So... I'm imagining a few different simultaneous impacts. And so you'd have the neck and the arm flooding and broken at the same time. That's, that's my thinking. But again, it's theoretical. No, I'm, I'm with you. The only, uh, like, I see people talk about a rise in sea level too. But the only thing is that if you read the section about the Jogos Nai, you know, they call this the dry times, right? You know, they, there was like the great inland seas that dried up on um, both sides of the bones, well, that's consistent with the climate, global climate temperature rising. You'd get a drying out in the deserts and a sea level rise at the same time. Well, yeah, I, I, I think I that's that, what we're seeing. But like, it just makes you wonder if, like, there was, you know, if if it. I think it has more to do with your moon meteor theory than the sea level rise. Like that makes more sense to me. Uh, and I, well, I if like the uh, uh, the wall and having the you know the uh, land of uh, always winter being so frozen, if that's what's affecting and creating more of the dry times as well. Like if there's some relationship there on on the global climate level of this world. (laughs) Well, I definitely think there's evidence that all the climate changed around the world after the long night. It was such a kind of, you know, the the seasons themselves were thrown out of whack. So, you know, anytime something like that happens on Earth, you get a mini ice age because of a volcano or an impact event. Uh, It always, you know, changes all the climate cycles. So. All right. Uh, Quinn, what do you think about um, specifically? I want to get back to the whole theme of the pact. The thing that really resonates here with me is not the evidence of the meteor impacts and where they fell and all that crap, but the idea that humans and children of the forest, the time that they would have been working together the most is during the long night. And then we have this story about the pact. So it already makes sense to me for those things to be happening at the same time. And then the meteor evidence for the hammer of the waters basically dictates that that's the case. So what do you think about all that? Well, yeah, you know, we've talked about discrepancies in the timeline before. So, like, I always say that when it comes to thousands and thousands of years, there's nothing that we can really know for certain. 
Um, so we, we have to imagine that a lot of well, these stories have been passed down, for, by the way, from person to person, like through oral tradition, mostly like no one has been like writing all of this down and keeping an accurate account. So it is more than likely, I think, that what we're presented in the beginning is not the whole truth and is probably inaccurate. And there's probably things mixed around. There's probably things that have been split apart or merged together as far as like um, individuals or places or uh, timelines when specific events happened. So, you know, I'm always down with some, you know, theorizing on, you know, discrepancies in the timeline. And I have a bunch of my own ideas too. But yeah. Cool. Cool. So setting aside the question of, what exactly the order of the events happened on the Isle of Faces. I do want to make the point that the face carving supposedly happened shortly after the hammer fell. But if the hammer was really a long night moon meteor, then this means the face carving was done around the time that Azor High would have been invading Westeros. I like this a lot because I've always seen the face carving as something that was done against the will of the trees, something that marks the invasion of the trees uh, against their will, without consent, if you will. Azor Ahai is the one invading the Weirwood Net, so it figures that he's the one carving the faces or causing them to be carved. And once again, you think of Daemon Targaryen literally carving the face of the Weirwood there. Now at this point, I can hear Bronn Starys, the wise old dragon, asking the question, so what exactly do you think happened here? That's the kind of question he likes to ask. We talked about some of that just now, but based on what we just discussed, I think the evidence is pointing the most strongly towards the green zombie ritual and thus the formation of the Night's Watch occurring on the Isle of Faces. I also think it's looking like the blood magic ritual to break the moon may have occurred there as well, though I think that's less certain. There are also stories that the hammer was called down by the green seers at Moat Kaelin instead of the Isle of Faces, as we just discussed. And there's always the possibility that Azor Ahai did his blood magic ritual at a shy as well. Still, at the end of the day... There was some reason that Azor High needed to come to Westeros, and access to the Weirwood Net is the most likely reason. If so, the Isle of Faces would seem to be the place. So that was a bit of a discretion into Hammer of the Waters talk, but if we want to understand the Green Men, then we have to understand the events on the Isle of Faces. Now you can see why this chapter at the Night Fort is written the way it is. Sam shows up, talks about cold hands and the spells of the Old Ones, Bran mentions the green men, and then we see a weirwood with an arm and fingers trying to destroy the moon. It's telling a story about the events of the Long Night, about the destruction of the moon with green seer magic, called down on the Isle of Faces, perhaps, where the green men live, and about the creation of the green zombie night's watchman like cold hands with that same green man weirwood magic. Warding the first version of the wall with spells of the old ones against which no shadow can pass, which is where we started this section, makes a lot of sense as something this new alliance of green seers and first men would do. Overall, I think the comparison between the green men performing blood magic on the Isle of Faces and the wall being built with the spells of the old ones, who may be the green men, works very well. One of the other places, which Melisandre says is woven with old spells that prevent shadows from passing, also happens to be tied to horned gods, and brand the builder, just as the wall is. And that would, of course, be Storm's End. There was no need, she said. He was unprotected. But here, the Storm's End is an old place. There are spells woven into the stones. Dark walls that no shadow can pass. 
ancient, forgotten, yet still in place. Again, we see the spells are set to prevent shadows from passing. The shadow babies here at Storm's End and dead things like cold hands at the wall and probably the others themselves who are called white shadows. That's a fascinating topic on its own. So the oldest places in Westeros are warded against shadows and whites with spells? Sounds like something they came up with during the long night, no? It's also a potential connection between Storm's End and the Wall, which, again, are both attributed to Bran the Builder, maybe. The legends of Storm's End's creation also involve talk of the children of the forest shaping stones with magic, which is kind of hard to fathom, but may be more easily attributable to the Old Ones, who did, after all, create underground cities on the Isle of Lang. Then there is that Ariane Martell T-Wow chapter, uh, early release chapter that we talked about last time. The one where she finds stone pillars, seemingly stalactites and stalagmites which have grown together, carved with faces that resemble heart tree faces, deep underground in the rainwood near Storm's End. Perhaps this is a place that belonged to the old ones rather than the children as Ariane and her company presume. Of course, if the green men slash old ones really are some kind of stag man connected to the Weirwoods. They can surely be considered cousins to the children of the forest, and they're surely connected. Overall, it's an interesting picture here at Storm's End. Why did those Durand and Kings wear antlered hats anyway for all these millennia? Perhaps the answer is that the green men were active in this area the days of yore, and that they left their mark on local folklore, and perhaps on the stone itself. The tales of the ancient Durandan kings here speak of children of the forest and giants. But the green men are basically like giant children of the forest, so perhaps that's what's going on here. And I'll also mention that uh, Brandon the Bloody Blade uh, down at Red Lake was also said to be killing giants and children of the forest. So maybe he was killing Sir Nunos. Garth children. Now here's another thing to consider. Oftentimes in the real world and in A Song of Ice and Fire history, one conqueror, king, or warlord defeats another and takes their symbolism on in order to rule their lands. That's the whole floppy ears principle. That's how the Baratheons came to wear antlers. They essentially took over the ancient Durandan seat of Storm's End, married into the Storm King's line, and sought to carry on his symbols of power. The Boltons have supposedly worn the skins of the Starks that they've slain, and then over in Essos, we have Huzor Amai, king of the Sarnori, who defeated the king of the Hairy Men, and then wore his skin as a pelt. Perhaps during God's grief wore antlers because he slew green men in order to win his kingdom, and because the somewhat terrifying image of the Stagman was already imbued with power and mystique in that area. I would say it was both of those things, because Durin Godsgrief is an Azor high type who challenges and steals from the gods, and I believe Azor essentially slew green men in some sense, as we just discussed. In doing so, Durin and Azor themselves became horned gods in the sense that they stole the power of the horned gods. Also, at the risk of stating the obvious, wearing antlers makes you look a bit like a tree person with branches sticking out of your head. Thus, when you kill horned lords and steal their attire, it's akin to killing them and stealing their weirwood home, which is exactly what Azor Hyde did. Now, when I looked at the history here, I noticed that there are some Durandan kings who war on the giants and the children, and some who are friendly with the children. 
The god's grief himself was the first to claim the rainwood, that wet wilderness that had hitherto belonged only to the children of the forest. His son, Durin the Devout, returned to the children most of what his father had seized, but a century later, Durin Bronzax took it back again, this time for good and all. The songs tell us that Durin the Dower slew Lund the Last, king of the giants, at the Battle of Crookwood, but scholars still debate whether he was Durin the Fifth or Durin the Sixth. Uh, yes, I believe it was uh, Durin the Sixth, Durin the Sixth, yes. And those who believe it was Durin the Fifth are just ignorant. <laughs> They're ignorant. Yes. They're so ignorant. <laughs> nice, nice. The wonderful, beautiful children. <laughs> oh, now Quinn gets it. All right. So there's the god's grief, taking the rainwood from the children, which means he probably slaughtered them. But then his son gave it back to the children. And one thinks of the idea that evil Azor High's son became the last hero, a friend of the children of the forest and the weirwoods. Then there is another Durandan king named Raven Friend, which makes him sound like one who is pro-children and pro-green seer. And then when the Andals invaded, which was long after the long night, definitely, definitely, we hear of a Durandan king who sounds like the last hero. But King Baldric won Durandan the Cunning, proved expert at setting them one against the other. And King Durin the 21st took the unprecedented step of seeking out the remaining children of the forest in the caves and the hollow hills where they had taken refuge and making common cause with them against the men from beyond the sea. In the battles fought at Black Bog in the Misty Wood beneath the Howling Hill, the precise location of which has been sadly lost, this Werewood Alliance deals the Andals a series of stinging defeats and checked the decline of the Storm Kings for a time. The Disputed Lands is wondering if perhaps Loon the Last is the uh, I am the last of the giants that the wildlings sing about. Could be. Could be. That's very cool. So Baldric uh, is a variant of the Eldric, Aldric, Elric name tree. And of course, these types of figures are always last hero, stolen other baby figures, as we saw in Blood of the Other series. Uh, but one of the the thing is that Eldric name, the root name of Eldric is actually Aldric. That's that's the oldest form. Uh, so Baldric is a pretty good Elric stolen other baby last hero name, and that was the point I was making. So this is, and the, his story is a last hero story. You can see what happens. Um, just to to recap, he seeks out the children of the forest um, when the uh, the first men are hard pursued by the Andals. And, of course, this is an interesting echo of the last hero story because it places a horned stag man as the last hero who is part of a weirwood alliance with the children of the forest. The Andals make good stand-ins for the others due to their symbolism, which is another topic that we've explored elsewhere. But just in brief, think of their white marble septs like the Sept of Baylor or the Sept of the Snows at White Harbor, or think of all the icy crystal that the faith likes to use to decorate. So, to me, this last hero parallel story uh, alludes to the idea that the famous pact between the first men and the children of the forest occurred during the long night and not thousands of years before, and that the formation of the Night's Watch was part of this pact. The Night's Watch was certainly a weirwood alliance between the children and the first men, and the spells of the old ones may have been at work to raise the first black brothers from the dead. So, pretty cool. That's a pretty cool little Easter egg, isn't it? That little uh, that little story, Baldric. yeah, 
it's fantastic it really ties together like it just makes it explicit everything you're talking about and it's probably you get the idea that you know since this was occurring during the fight against the andals this was well after the long night but he probably this hero baldrick was probably thinking of the of the stories of the long night when the children of the forest sought out or when uh, the last hero sought out the children and he was like I know what I'll do. I'll do what the last hero did and seek out the children. So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And you always got to wonder about those timelines, of course. <laughs> we really have no idea. But I, it, it, whether it's uh, the Andals or some other group, it, it, it's a perfect tie-in to the last hero. Yep. And, uh, and of course, tying it to uh, Storm's End and Baratheon, House Baratheon is pretty cool. So... Again, I will point out that weird legend of the children having helped build Storm's End, as this also suggests a possible alliance between the ancient Durandon and the children of the forest. The idea that there are old spells set into the walls of Storm's End, spells similar to the old one spells at the wall, lends credence to the notion that either the children of the forest, the green men, or the magic of one of those groups was in fact used to raise and protect Storm's End, most likely during the Long Night, when people would have been worried about magical shadow assassins. The same being done at the Wall is really just common sense. One has to wonder what that first wall was made out of. Underneath all that ice, might there be a wall of fused black stone or oily stone? Sorry, I'll put the tinfoil away. All right, that's the section. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, a little tinfoil there slipped out at the end. I like it. I do like that idea, though. Quinn, what do you think? Oily Blackstone under the ice? I mean, yeah, sure. I like it. (laughs) Why not? Yeah. Yeah. The problem with that is that when they're digging the tunnel through the ice at Castle Black, should they run into the stone and they don't, so. Yeah. Yeah. There's that. Unless they were, like, just, like, pillars throughout or something. Oh, yeah, it's not a wall, guys. It's a fence. Come on, it's a wall. Blackstone slats. Yeah, Blackstone slats. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, boy. Uh, Art imitates life, imitates art, imitates Uh, life. The Ouroboros of insanity. Well, one thing we should talk about, too, is that the Durandans being um, part mermaid, right? Uh, Sort of magical beings themselves. They may have been more uh, more inclined to, or have a greater connection with the children. You know, uh, not sure exactly what it is, but uh. so I tend to think that the L and I mermaid symbolism is symbolism, and not that she's an actual mermaid. Although disputed lands will probably disagree with me there, and I'm not certain by any means. Um, but I think I think all that is is Nissa Nissa should always come from the sea because she's a child of the forest or a green man woman um that is connected to the weirwoods so that's why i think she's often a mermaid but well there's you know uh i i wrote an essay about this a long time ago but there's like these reptilian water serpents they're called like ukenta there's a couple other names but they're horned serpents right and they're very much tied in with Sir Nunos because he, some depictions of him, he has either snakes serving him or or his legs are actually snakes as well. So there could be some relationship between the horns of the Durandans and water beings that are horned serpents, you know? It, That's it, interesting. It could go even deeper than uh, just a mermaid uh, image. 
Yeah. Well, this, the snake tree symbol also comes to us from the Garden of Eden snake and uh, the Nidhogg serpent beneath Yggdrasil. So that's kind of um, – and snakes and are used to depict time as our trees. So there's a lot of overlapping symbolism there. There's a lot of snakes in underworld mythology as well and symbolism. Yeah, and the one other thought too is that like uh, you know this whole story in essence begins with an antler right found in the the uh, direwolf, you know, um, and we always assume that it's from a, a, a an elk or a stag or whatever, but we never actually see it, you know. Uh, it could be from something. that's true. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was from a Cernunos. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or that's a funny. <laughs> well, of course, Renly breaks off a tine of his antlers in the tournament and then yeah. uh, throws it to the crowd. So there you go. Your theory is, is proven. <laughs> Let me get some more spoopy music. Oh, this is one of my best section titles ever. Just, mm-hmm. I'm just telling you. No Stairway. This section is brought to you by Stina Fleming, a.k.a. Bulwer the Purple. Helm's Woman of the Cinnamon Wind and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Taurus. By Lady Shar, Wielder of the Sacred Shard, Ice Priestess of the House of the Unsleeping, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Scorpio. By John Old Blackheel of House Thompson, Wielder of a Valerian Steel Tray of Fish Food and Kraken Tacos, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Ophiuchus. By Questing Beasts, the Anger Ranger, Keeper of the Dragon's Wrath, and Earthly Avatar of Heavenly House Virgo and Libra. And Servorian, the Warg of the Morning, wielder of the dual blades of sunrise. And oh, that's a terrifying sound. I made that sound. I love this part. It's just, it's basically like the sound of doing DMT. If you've ever done DMT, it, it makes that sound in your brain. It's sort of a... All right, so getting back to the wall, which we now know was built at least in part by the old ones. Let's talk about the switchback stare, an outstanding symbol that we've neglected for far too long. This is from a Sam chapter of A Feast for Crows. Castle Black's keeps and towers rose above him, dwarfed by the icy immensity of the wall. A small army was crawling over the ice a quarter of the way up, where a new switchback stair was creeping upward to meet the remnants of the old one. Uh-oh. The old one. Dun-dun-dun. That switchback stair, it's highly symbolic and significant, and it seems to have something to do with the old ones. I'm going to tell you right now, this stair is a symbol of a weirwood tree, and that's why it's a hub of old ones action. In the scene we just read, the Black Brothers are repairing the burned section of the stair, which was sacrificed to win the battle against the wildlings. But check out this scene from A Storm of Swords, where John sees the stair before it was burnt. And after he's escaped Steer's group of wildlings and is approaching Castle Black at dawn. As the stars began to fade in the eastern sky, the wall appeared before him, rising above the trees in the morning mists. Moonlight glimmered pale against the ice, He urged the gelding on, following the muddy, slick road until he saw the stone towers and timbered halls of Castle Black huddled like broken toys beneath the cliff of ice. By then the wall glowed pink and purple with the first light of dawn. 
From the ground, he could not tell if there were sentries walking up on the wall 700 feet above. But he saw no one on the huge switchback stair that climbed the south face of the ice like some great wooden thunderbolt. As you can see, this is a great Dawn is the original ice sword of House Stark scene, with the wall lighting up and glowing with the dawn light. And there's the stairway to heaven. No stairway! No stairway! Climbing the ice like a wooden thunderbolt. This is the old one stairway, which is like a wooden thunderbolt. And of course, that puts us in mind of the storm god's thunderbolt, which set the fire of the god's tree ablaze. Especially since this wooden thunderbolt stairway is destined to be set on fire. So it's basically all three symbols rolled together. Tree, thunderbolt, and then burning tree. So the thunderbolt motif is repeated again when Tyrion first sees the wall. A wooden stair ascended the south face, anchored on huge rough-hewn beams sunk deep into the ice and frozen in place. Back and forth it switched, clawing its way upward as crooked as a bolt of lightning. Martin really wants us to think about this wooden stair as a bolt of lightning, it seems. And again, this wooden thunderbolt is eventually set on fire. Now, because the stair itself is a visual metaphor of climbing to the heaven, and they call it... No, I'm sorry, I can't sing Robert Plant. I'm not going to do that. Because the stair itself is a visual metaphor of climbing to the heavens, it works well as a symbol of the thunderbolt which set the tree ablaze and gave the fire of the gods to man an act which allows man to become like a god and thus ascend the stairway to heaven. I really want to sing this, but I just can't. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to resist and be a good boy. So the basic message sent by labeling the old switchback stair as the old one after it's burnt would, again, seem to be to equate the old ones, the green men, to the weirwoods and their ability to transfer the fire of the gods to man. This fits with our analysis in the last section concerning Azor High, perhaps killing the green men to take their power. Setting the old one's stare on fire is basically like setting the green man weirwood net on fire. After John gets back to Castle Black and warns everyone of the imminent wildling threat from Steer's group south of the wall, they make preparations to defend against this attack, and we get yet another good thunderbolt description of the switchback stare. So Castle Black had a wall of sorts at last, a crescent-shaped barricade ten feet high made of stores, casks of nails and barrels of salt mutton, crates, bales of black broadcloth, stacked logs, sawn timbers, fire-hardened stakes, and stacks and stacks of grain. The crude ramparts enclosed the two things most worth defending, the gate to the north and the foot of the great wooden switchback stair that clawed and climbed its way up the face of the wall like a drunken thunderbolt, supported by wooden beams as big as tree trunks driven deep into the ice. So Castle Black is now defended by a crescent-shaped wall of food, basically, which I found kind of amusing. There might be a cornucopia horn of plenty joke going on there, but there's the stairway, clawing and climbing like a thunderbolt. And look, it's drunk! It's a drunken stairway this time. And she's buying stairway to hell. Okay, that's the one I can sing. I used to live on Hate Street. I've heard that before. And I used to work at Guitar Center. So I've heard every bad... That's why I'm taking this out on y'all. I've got a lot of built-up, no-stairway energy. It's all coming out. All right. So there it is. It's, it's drunk. 
It's drunk with the mead of poetry and the fire of the gods, of course. Just like Odin, who's always drinking from his mead of poetry horn. Just to make sure that we're thinking of the weirwood trees, when we see that the stair is like a wooden thunderbolt, George points out that the beams that support it are as big as tree trunks. One might even infer the meaning that the stairway represents the entire weirwood net, which is made up of many tree trunks. Not only do these thunderbolt tree trunks catch on fire, it's John, an Azor high figure, who's one of the people who light it on fire. Yes, that's right. One of the people who light them on fire. Amazingly, it is right before he lights it on fire with a couple of other black brothers that we get that quote where John says to Satin, Pray to your new gods and I'll pray to my old ones. It reminds me of Bran praying to the old gods right after he sees the weirwood trying to pull the moon down into the well, actually. Sticking with this same John chapter, here is the scene where John and Satin prepare to set the stair on fire. Fetch the torches, John told Satin. There were four of them stacked besides the fire, their heads wrapped in oily rags. There were a dozen fire arrows, too. The old town boy thrust one torch into the fire until it was blazing bright and brought the rest back under his arm, unlit. So there is your last hero math. A dozen unlit fire arrows in the hands of the Night's Watch and one lit torch to set them all on fire. This makes wonderful sense as it ties the last hero's group of zombie heroes to the burning wooden thunderbolt old one staircase, which is really a weirwood. The green zombie theory has always postulated that the uh, zombies are resurrected through weirwood magic and that the Night's Watch swearing their vows to the weirwood trees is, as I mentioned, an echo of the original zombie-making ritual. Alternately, and more simply, you can just look at John and observe that it's an Azora high figure setting fire to the switchback stair, the symbolic weirwood tree, which is consistent with everything else that points towards Azora high setting the weirwood net on fire. So let's put this scene together, since Martin has again given us two separate Old Ones quotes that link together. John praying to the Old Ones before lighting the stair on fire, and the burnt stair later being labeled as the Old One. So the wooden thunderbolt switchback stair represents a weirwood tree being struck by lightning. You guys got that. And it's labeled as an Old One. So what's happening here is that John essentially prays to the Old Ones, the green men, and then immediately turns and sets their tree on fire. Now, this seems highly ritualistic when taken together, and it also reminds us that when Stannis offered John Winterfell and the Stark name a chance to be Lord John Stark, Lord of Winterfell, the requirement was setting fire to the heart tree in the Winterfell Godswood. I think this idea of setting the tree on fire is, of course, symbolic, not literal, which is why John doesn't actually burn one, but through this road not taken alternate reality where John burns the Winterfell tree and through this scene with John setting fire to the switchback stair we can see that John is cast in the trademark Azor High role of being the one who sets the Weirbonet on fire and of course if you want to see the rest of the evidence about that that's in a grove of ash Weirbonet Compendium 4 so what's relevant here is the implied presence of the old ones who seem to be in the tree when it's set on fire once again, I believe this supports our emerging narrative. The green men slash old ones slash Garth people are the original beings, along with the children perhaps, who were bonded to the weirwood trees before evil Azor High killed Nissa Nissa and invaded the weirwood net. 
These actions permanently altered the Weirbanet, I'm thinking, which was the home of the green men, green seers, before this. The Weirwoods are the home of the old ones, it seems clear. And since they are the old ones, they kind of have to be the originals, right? Or else they wouldn't be called the old ones. So there's a hint about stagmen as green seers, actually, in this very chapter. Because this is also the chapter where, right before the fight, we get that line about the horned lord riding the sky. The west had gone the color of a blood bruise, but the sky above was cobalt blue, deepening to purple, and the stars were coming out. John sat between two merlins with only a scarecrow for company and watched the stallion gallop up the sky. Or was it the horned lord? Or was it? We will get into this more in a future Weirwood Compendium episode, but... The flying celestial stallion is a nod to Yggdrasil and Sleipnir, Odin's two astral projection horses, which allow him to fly through the cosmos. And giving the stallion constellation the name the Horned Lord, north of the wall, clues us into the idea of the Horned Lords, the green man old ones, riding the sky as green seers. That makes sense, of course. Only a moment after seeing the Horned Lord in the sky here, the wildling attack begins, and John is praying to the Old Ones, and then lighting their Old Ones symbolic tree on fire. Next to him, while he does this, is a Scarecrow Night's Watchman. And this, of course, serves as a tremendous clue about the Undead Night's Watch, as we know, emphasizing the link between Zombie Night's Watch, the Horned Lord, and the Old Ones, who are really the old gods of the Weirwood. Honestly, this scene reminds us a bit of Danny looking and seeing the red comet right before she lights Drogo's pyre on fire. John sees the horned lord in the sky and then lights the green man old one's tree on fire and Danny looks up, sees the comet in the sky and lights Drogo's pyre on fire and hatches the dragons. So pretty similar. And of course, both the burning stairway and the burning pyre are what we like to call ground zero bonfires, which symbolize burning weirwoods. Uh, this is where the Lightbringer reactions always happen, right? In the middle of these bonfires. So you can find actually elements of both of these scenes, the stairway and Danny's alchemical wedding, at another Ground Zero bonfire, the burning of the Seven on Dragonstone, which features burning trees like the stairway scene. Um, and then it also, and of course I'm talking about the, the burning mass of the ships carved into the shapes of the Seven that burn there. And then with Stannis is the one that lights the fire that time instead of John. Of course, he's an Azor High figure, and it has the birth of a Lightbringer sword to parallel the birth of Danny's dragons. Meanwhile, Drogo's bonfire had burning trees too, and of course, the idea of ascending to the stars was prominently featured, an idea that plays off the theme of the stairway to heaven. So now that we've come to the actual burning of the switchback stair, it's time to talk about how the others figure into all this. So think about it. We have this repeated message that the Weirwoods were originally the home of the Green Men, who are the Old Ones. And we also see this repeated depiction of Azor Ahai setting the Weirwood home of the Green Men on fire. Now, separately, we've been seeing evidence that Azor Ahai's invasion of the Weirwood Net is what evicted the others from the Weirwood Net. So, don't the others kind of have to be the spirits of the Old Ones who are already inside the tree? This would fit very, very well with George's description of the others as Icy She, and really he means Icy Ice She, as the word She refers to the mounds, and Ice She refers to the people of the mounds. 
Now, the basic concept here, which Quinn already explained in more detail, of course, is that the I, she are something like fairies or elf spirits, and calling the others icy spirit elves kind of makes sense, right? Especially if the others are the spirits of the original green seers, who are Cernunos-like stagmen. So no wonder the others are pissed. No wonder they seem to emerge from the shadow of the weirwood. So I'm going to stop right there and ask you guys what you think about that. I never picked up on the um, uh, the stairs winding up the wall. That's a really nice uh, bit of symbolism that you've pulled out there. And the fact that he keeps repeating it and that connection to thunderbolts and gods makes it really obvious on retrospect. Yeah, it's pretty good. It's pretty good stuff. You know, it's a wooden thunderbolt that gets set on fire, so that's an easy symbol. And it's it connects the the bottom of the wall to the top of the wall, which two different places that have interesting symbolism. And uh, then, yeah, it gets set on fire, and there's more to come. Um, so I'm seeing a message from Quinn here saying, uh, struggling with the voice. Quinn, is that so? You want to go ahead and dip out, buddy? Yeah, I'm going to have to go ahead and leave. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go see if I can get some medicine. My throat's like really, really killing me right now. Cool, man. Well, we appreciate you putting in um, your presence here and wish you the best of health. Yeah, I'll keep listening. Feel better. Feel better, buddy. Yeah, man. Thanks for coming. And uh, yeah, feel better. There we go. This is uh, we're going to expand on this in a minute. But guys, that is this is my theory about the others that I was hyping up. They were the spirits of the original green seers who were green men inside the weirwood net. And when Azor Ahai invaded the Weirwood Net, he evicted the, the people that were in there. And they got forced out of the trees and became the others. And that's essentially my theory. And it's too bad that Quinn had to leave. But, you know, his, his theory about the others as the Aishi, you know, icy elves, basically comes back to he was saying that he thinks there's a separate group of children of the forest that essentially split off from the children that we see and became the others. And that's why the others speak in a language of cracking ice, uh, whereas the children sound like a babbling brook, you know, amongst other things. I really like that. So this is just basically a tweak on that idea that instead of a rival group of children, it was actually some of these green men, which are probably related to the children who essentially became the others. So I was pretty happy when I realized that, and I realized that it was very similar to Quinn's idea and it fits very well with the idea. It's, it's almost like George was giving it away when he called them icy, you know, she. Yeah. It's radical, but also not radical. So Wiz the Smith is asking a good question. How do they become icy? Well, there's another step. So these spirits are evicted from the trees, right? And they might be incorporeal or incorporeal until we get some baby sacrifice, right? Because we need craster babies to make more others. So what I'm seeing is like the other that we see is one part spirit of the dead green seer, but then the magic needed to give it that icy body probably comes from the sacrifice of babies. And so that's why you have knight's king and knight's queen sacrificing to the others. What they might have been doing is sacrificing to the spirit others before they ever existed on the physical plane. And that by giving them their, their enchanted children, their sons that allowed the others to manifest. Um, so I think 
that is essentially what my current theory is. That's nice. I like it. And if you remember, all the way back in Green Zombies 3, when I first wrote it, at the very end, I threw out this weird idea about trees body-snatching people. And I said that somehow we're going to get this, where you have the spirit of a green seer or the tree itself inside the tree that's looking to escape and get out of the tree. And that it's either going to steal a white body or you know, make for itself an icy golem body and become the others. This was sort of like a brainwave intuition that I had. And essentially, I'm following up on that thought and saying that this is how that happened. So I'm pretty excited about it. (laughs) So do you think that uh, the others have their own god that they worship, uh, that they derive some power from, like the dragons and Rilor? Well, I think that the original Night King probably exists inside the frozen part of the other's weirwood net and that would be the great other so just like blood raven is like the head green seer on the the might say the living half of the weirwood net there's probably a head green seer on the frozen side who would be night king and i've been saying for a while that i think the book night king will only exist in the weirwood net and that he will not end up appearing um well maybe he'll manifest at the end but he's not just walking around outside all the time like on the show. So, Yeah, well, the, the one other thought I've had about that, because I tend to agree with you that we won't see the Night's King. But the one other thought is that, like, resurrected Jon Snow uh, could be some sort of, you know, Night's King, given his stark lineage and, um, you know, the sort of symbolism of the love story with a wildling. I don't know if I believe it necessarily, but... the. That would be the only way I would go with that. Yep. I've wondered if I've wondered if maybe John's body might get temporarily possessed by the others, or I guess by Night's King before they sort of steal it back, if you will. So you could see John rise as, you know, with blue eyes for a time and then John's spirit is in ghost, so his body's vacant, maybe, and then they gotta steal it back. Um that is like a wild speculation I had one time. So that sort of fits with what you're talking about. What do you think about, like, how would that relate to Danny um, and the Nisa Nisa myth in the story? Well, we're still trying to figure out what the connection is between Nissa Nissa and Night's Queen. Uh, it's also possible that the quote unquote great other, you know, powerful presence inside the Weirwood Net is actually, you know, Night's Queen or, you know, remnant of Nissa Nissa. Although, Nissa Nissa, to me, is on the living half of the Weirwood Net, not the... Uh, she is the living half of the Weirwood Net, not the, not the cold half. And that's the whole point of there being a difference. Because Nissa Nissa raises the green zombies to fight the others. So, But it might be Night's Queen. Um, it might be Night's King. It might be just a composite other presence that won't ever get, you know, described that specifically as having a gender or whatever. Lots of possibilities here. Well, yeah, the other thing, too, is like uh, you and I were talking about this, LML, um, about the, you know, the Norse idea of the soul that can leave the body uh, and then goes to Valhalla. But if it doesn't want to leave, it might resurrect its body and create the uh, Norse zombies, the Joggers, or it might go into a tree. Uh, So that concept could definitely tie into this as well, like... uh, uh, you know, if John is dead, but his his hunger or his you know his soul is in is is in ghost, 
and uh, he's laying there becoming colder and more wolf-like. Um, there, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see what that transition does to him. So that also makes me think of the show where they talked about um, Benjen being sort of like in the process of being turned you know, to the other's magic, and then they saved him with the dragon glass. Um, and even if the mechanism isn't in the same in the book, it does make you think about the idea of you know, can a white be saved or can somebody be saved before they're turned? Um, we've got the whole stolen other baby idea, which is the idea of taking a, a child destined to become an other and not having them become another. So there's definitely that's that's why I was excited about this episode. I think this is going to provide grounds for new, you know, more speculation and theory making. It's just uh, another cool, fun thing to tinker with. So. All right. Um, picking back up with the script. So here is John Ahai. Azor Snow, praying to the Old Ones, and then setting the symbolic Old Ones tree on fire. Are any of the people caught on the burning stair, representative of the Old Ones who turn into the others? Well, so glad you asked, so glad you asked. All of the wildlings can be used to symbolize the others. They do it in John's Azor High dream, and again, all throughout the chapter where John lets them through the wall. More specifically, though, the leader of the men trapped on the burning stair is Steer, the earless Magnar of Then, who has otherish symbolism. First of all, he carries a weirwood spear, somewhat reminiscent of the High Septon's weirwood staff, crowned by a crystal orb. And of course, crystal often serves as a symbolic analog for ice. Last time we saw there was even an old one, High Septon, who died in his sleep. And because the High Septon is viewed as the avatar of the gods on Earth, this seemed to be Martin telling us about the Old Ones, as being the old gods of the Weirwood, the Green Seers, who die in their sleep and enter the Weirwood net. Thus, it's interesting to see the Magnar with the Weirwood spear, because Magnar means Lord in the Old Tongue, and better still, John observes that his people thought him more God than Lord. In other words, Steer is a Weirwood god-man of the oldest first man tradition. At one point, Steer utters the extremely Odin-like Odin -like line. At one point, Steer utters the extremely Odin-like line, the boy might see more clear with one eye instead of two, while threatening John at knife point to try to get him to tell the truth. Later at Queen's Crown, Steer commands John to kill the old man beneath the apple tree, which is an obvious parallel to a weirwood sacrifice. So more weirwood godman, weirwood priest action. Then consider also that a steer, S-T-E-E-R, is a name for a neutered male cow, a neutered bull, which kind of makes steer a horned lord. But a neutered horned lord, of course, implies a green man who has lost his green. As for steer's other symbolism, well, the neutering implication of steer for a start because others are implied as infertile, being a brotherhood of white shadows, who need craster babies or Night's King babies to make more others. If they are the evicted spirits of green men, then they are, symbolically, green men who've lost their green, as we've been saying. That's consistent with Steer, who is, you know, got the neutered bull symbolism. And, of course, Steer has no hair, which is the opposite of hairy, fertile Garth characters. Steer's ears were probably lost to frostbite, implying him as an ice-transformed person. That's probably the strongest symbolism. And he stares at John coldly when they first meet in Mance's tent. Mance's tent itself is a frozen horned lord symbol being made of polar bear skins and adorned with a rack of antlers from a great elk, 
like the one that Cold Hands rides. Interestingly, Steer actually does not burn on the stair, but instead falls and is buried in snow. Many leapt from the steps before they burned and died from the fall. Twenty-odd thens were still huddled together between the fires when the ice cracked from the heat, and the whole lower third of the stair broke off, along with several tons of ice. That was the last that Jon Snow saw of Steer, the Magnar of Then. So if the burning stair is the weirwood tree, and Steer and his men the old ones in the tree, then leaping or falling from the stair and being buried in snow and ice is a wonderful metaphor for the old ones being driven from the weirwood net when it's set on fire by Azor High to become the others. The fire literally drove them from the stairway, which is like a tree, and into the ice. One thinks about the bodies of the failed dreamers in Bran's coma dream vision, the ones impaled on spires of ice. I've speculated that those somehow represent green seers who became the others. I've been saying that for like four years. And here we are with sort of more insight into how that is true. Green seers did become the others. I didn't know how that was true then, but now we know. The green men, the old gods of the Weirwoods, were evicted, and that's kind of like falling and being impaled on an ice spire. So Bran flew while those other dreamers fell. And Steer's fall into the ice here reminds me of those cold, impaled dreamers. Thinking about the idea of the green men, old ones being kicked out of the weirwood and somehow locked in magical icy bodies, look again upon the words of cold hands. The wall is more than just ice and stone, he said. There are spells woven into it, old ones and strong. This line may itself be a clue about old ones being trapped into the ice, woven into the ice, so to speak, locked in their icy bodies, the icy bodies of the others. Heck, the wall does have a talking weirwood face beneath its ice at the night fort, a face which looks like that of a thousand-year-old man. Perhaps that's showing us what is underneath those glimmering icy bodies of the others, a very old weirwood god. That face glows like milk and moonlight, while the bones of the others are as pale as milk glass, for what it's worth. Oh, and you know how we keep seeing people with one leg in all these scenes? Thinking all the way back to two weeks ago's episode... We had old one leg at the well in Marine, the one-eyed Sir Bartimus at the wolf's den, who is also missing a leg. We had Septon Maribald, who speaks of having more blisters than toes when he first went shoeless, and of his souls bleeding like pigs. Well, John is limping around on a crutch in all these scenes after having taken that arrow wound in the leg while fleeing the wildlings. So it's yet another one-legged man. And I have to assume this is a reference to Bran and the idea of crippled green seers, especially since crippled Bran is present in the scene where Sam relays Coldhand's words of the spells set into the wall being old ones. The crippled symbolism is also a manifestation of the general concept of losing physical sight and abilities to gain spiritual mobility and sight. John is also fresh off of his wounding in one eye by Orel's eagle in the scene. So just like Bartimus at the Wolf's Den, John has an Odin eye wound and some sort of one-legged status as he speaks of the old gods and the old ones. That's a pretty good correlation. And don't forget that it was King John Stark who built the Wolf's Den. 
Before we change sections, I've got to confess that there's actually one more Old Ones quote that links to this in sort of a tangential way. Now, when Bowen Marsh receives word of Mormont's ranging, suffering defeat at the Fist of the First Men, and realizes that the wildling attack on the wall is imminent, he sends a letter to each of the five kings pleading for help. That is the letter that Davos famously finds when he's practicing his reading and which he takes to Stannis, leading to Stannis' decision to come to the wall. Here's the paragraph where Davos reads the letter. Give me another letter, if you would. As you wish, my lord. Maester Pylos rummaged about his table, unrolling and then discarding various scraps of parchment. There are no new letters, perhaps an old one? This might serve our purpose. Pylos passed him a letter. Davos flattened down the little square of crinkled parchment and squinted at the tiny crabbed letters. Reading was hard on the eyes, that much he had learned early. Sometimes he wondered if the Citadel offered a champion's purse to the maester who wrote in the smallest hand. Pylos had laughed at the notion, but... To the five kings, read Davos, hesitating briefly over five, which he did not often see written out. The king... Be the king... Beware... Beyond, the maester corrected. Actually, I think he had it right. All kings beware. Uh, But yeah, so the letter is an old one. Now, if any of these old ones' usages are just a coincidence, this may be the one. But it still kind of fits. The message by Raven from the Lord Commander of the Watch, or in this case, his surrogate, the traitorous Bowen Marsh, the old pomegranate. Well, that's interesting because the role of Lord Commander is one of you know, a green seer. That's why he's always got the raven and why John, the skin changer, becomes Lord Commander. Blood Raven was Lord Commander. Last Hero was the first Lord Commander and he was a skin changer or a green seer, et cetera, et cetera. So the letters that come from this person uh, is like the words of the old ones. That's how I interpret it. Now, this message has the effect of summoning Stannis, a stag man Azor high figure, to come to the wall to prepare to face the others, which he and Melisandre regard as the true enemy, and which we now know are really the old ones. So there you go. That's that section. There's one more section. But it looks like Sanri's had thoughts. Sanri. So you were talking about, you remembered what you were saying, and you were wondering about John having Night's King parallels. What does that mean for Danny's fate if she's Nissa Nissa? Um, well, so another version of John as Night's King, we were talking about maybe his body will be temporarily possessed by the others and then freed. Um, you know, Joe Magician and I talked about the prologue as sort of a foreshadowing where the others are trying to make Waymar a new Night's King. They're, they're essentially ice transforming him and they're giving him the one blue eye symbol, which makes him like a Euron figure, which is a Night's King thing. And so we talked about, well, maybe what they want from John is, you know, he's the prince that was promised to the others, and that they want him for a sunbeam, you know, a cold sunbeam, and that they want to make him a Night's King, and that maybe Jon Snow has to go along with that as some sort of self-sacrifice in order to, like, fulfill the pact and make the others happy or something like that. That is a distinct possibility, and it's also one of the things that we saw suggested when we backwards read the prologue, if you recall. Yeah. Um, and it, it makes me think of now, I think we were talking about recently, I don't remember where, but um, we were talking about John's um, 
like destiny in the show and how it's possible that he could be like the next cold hands and have to range beyond the wall forever. I think like that fits really well with the whole theme we have. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of want, um, I kind of prefer the cold hands plot line as opposed to him becoming a new Knights King. Um, it's not totally, not totally different. Uh, it's similar in some symbolic ways, but I like the fact that all of these fun possibilities seem to be in play. So there's a good story in there to be written for sure, I would think. Um, and you were also mentioning, uh, so what does it mean for Danny? Well, perhaps she becomes, maybe John and Danny are together forever, but like as, you know, a new knight's queen and king, or maybe they're undead, you know, so it's like happily ever after, but not quite. Oh, man, uh, that would be so bittersweet. Could be. Um, or maybe the th- the reason they have to can't be together is because John has to go become the new cold hands, and so he can't be with Danny. Um, I don't think kind of ignoble though for uh, for him to just be a wandering uh, servant. Kind of what? You know, what do you mean? Uh, ignoble, not uh, living up to his uh, the stature he has in the story. Well, I mean, he's kind of like if you think about his character. He's such like a self-sacrificing person. Like yeah, it's kind of like Jesus taking on the sins of the world. So John is paying the penance of mankind by being the new cold hands essentially. It's like uh even though he has like a regency and you could say like rule and authority in the story right now, he's kind of like um it it's not really like I guess I'm thinking more of the TV show and where the TV show's at right now, so I'm thinking of that Mm-hmm. level of John's thinking. So even though he does have some kind of regency and some kind of claim and whatnot, he is not, in my opinion, the kind of person who would just be like, okay, this is fine. Like, I'm going to just like put him, myself first and put my yeah. claim to the throne first is what I'm getting at. Sorry. Yeah. And both John and Danny um, could, could basically have that in common where giving up their claims on the throne is what makes them heroes. Uh, and and makes them similar, so I could I could see something like that happening for sure. Sure, I definitely see that happening for the. And, and I definitely think that that he's going beyond the wall uh, mm-hmm. after his resurrection in the in the books. Like uh, that's something uh, that could very well happen. Like he just decides to, you know, instead of going south, uh, he goes north for a while. And maybe he can stand the cold better as a dead person, you know, somehow. And so. Um, Getting back to the idea of the others as a green men, there's a couple of interesting ramifications here. So here's the here is the nuance to the others. You know, we're wondering, like, why are they mad? Was there some great wrong committed to them? Well, this would be the answer. They were driven out of they were they were they were good, happy Sernunos elves and they got driven out of their trees and they're pissed. Um, But maybe it's a little bit different. Uh, Maybe maybe the the green men are naughty. And that's why they became the others. Like, maybe those, maybe those green men, maybe Azor High's group of people were green men who essentially turned against the other green men. Uh, and so you have this rival kind of thing. Because remember, Stannis is also a stag man, even though he kills Renly. And Stannis is the fiery Azor High guy, and Renly is the green Garth guy. Stannis is also a stag man. Um, and I will give you a sneak preview of another Old Ones quote that I didn't include in this essay, but it fits here, and it's tantalizing. So, check this out. 
Others we find ripening under trees with ropes about their necks. We came on some the day before last, said Jamie. Adam Marbrand's scouts had found them, hanging black-faced beneath a crabapple tree. The corpses had been stripped naked, and each man had a crabapple shoved between his teeth. None bore any wounds. Plainly they had yielded. Strongbore had grown furious at that, vowing bloody vengeance on the heads of any man who would truss up warriors to die like suckling pigs. It might have been outlaws, Sir Davin said, when Jamie told the tale. Or not. There are still bands of Northmen about, and these lords of the Trident may have bent their knees, but methinks their hearts are still... wolfish. Jamie glanced at his two younger squires, who were hovering near the braziers, pretending not to listen. Luz Piper and Garrett Page were both the sons of Riverlords. He had grown fond of both of them and would hate to have to give them to Sir Ilan. The ropes suggest Dondarrion to me. Your lightning lord's not the only man who knows how to tie a noose. Don't get me started on Lord Beric. He's here, he's there, he's everywhere. But when you send men after him, he melts away like dew. The river lords are helping him, never doubt it. A bloody marcher lord, if you can believe that. One day you hear the man is dead, and the next they're saying how he can't be killed. Sir Davin put his warrant cup down. My scouts report fires in the high places at night. Signal fires, they think, as if there were a ring of watchers all around us. And there are fires in the villages as well. Some new god. No, an old one. Thoros is with Dondarrion, the fat Mirish priest who used to drink with Robert. His golden hand was on the table. Jamie touched it and watched the gold glimmer in the sullen light of the braziers. We'll deal with Dondarrion if we have to, but the blackfish must come first. So, R'hllor is an old one. Discuss. Uh, we, I've often wondered if, like, uh, there's a connection to the uh, fire god in Lovecraft, which is called... Um, uh, I'll have to think about it for a second. can't remember right now. But anyway, it's like a, a flaming ball of fire. Yeah. Great balls of fire. Sorry. <laughs> Makes sense Melisander would worship that, huh? So it could be two thoughts occur to me here. It could be that Martin's using old ones now in the more vague sense of like the old gods. So R'hllor and and the green men and the, all the old forces are the old ones. Um, that That's more like how Lovecraft uses the term. Uh, but it could be. I could think of ways that R'hllor is more literally connected to the green men. And it's just what we were saying. If Azor High is a green man who essentially, you know, chased after fire magic, then maybe maybe that's R'hllor. You know, maybe he's he's his spirit only exists in like the fiery ether realm. And and so he is an old one who essentially just as the old ones became the others and became frozen in the ice. Azor High is an old one who became R'hllor. What do you think, Silas? Well, uh, there's an interesting story here. I'll deviate slightly, but uh, it, it relates back to that. So basically, the god I was referring to is Cthulhu, uh, who was invented by Durlath uh, to be his like fire elemental. And then George's first uh, editor, one of his first editors, I should say, and one of his good friends, Lynn Carter, who wrote a lot of the Conan stories in the 60s, he invented a god uh, that's the uh, offspring of Cthulhu called Afum Zaha. Now, Afum Zaha is the cold flame, you know? If, if oh, Cthulhu wow. is, is the uh, the fireball, uh, Afum Zaha is, is an icy 
flame that there's only a few stories about but in essence one of them is that it lands on earth in the north pole and it lives underneath a mountain and like it was released once and it froze stop all the- yeah stop sorry go yeah. ahead <laughs> right pretty good stuff huh so and there's it- a cold flame whose name yeah. sounds like azora high lands at the north pole and then sleeps under the ice are you fucking serious right and invented by his uh one of his best buddies so george definitely knows about this story you know uh, it's pretty amazing stuff. And he has these servants called the Spectral Yidlim, right, or something. So uh, might be the others there too. So, so anyway. when you said when you said spectral, the you got glitched out. So say that again. Spectral Yidlim, they're called, I believe. If you look up uh, Afum Zaha, and uh, yeah, check that out. It's pretty fun stuff. So like the relationship between the fire god, the ice god that they're both there. And then the stories of song of ice and fire that when I heard that, I was like, Oh my God, it blew my mind. So <laughs> the idea of a cold flame. I mean, that's what the others are all about is, yeah. is the cold burning flame. I've talked about Azor high becoming night's King. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's basically Azor high's seed is the power that fuels the others in some sense. So just as the fire burns and drives them out of the weirwood net, there's also an element of, if Azor High is Night's King, Night's Queen is taking the fiery seed of Night's King and using that to create yeah. the physical bodies of the others mm-hmm. so that they are that frozen flame. Uh, so, so this is fun. Guys, when my personal tinfoil or theory making ends up with a storyline that is almost exactly like something that's an obvious influence of George Martin, like that's how you know when, when you're on the right track. <laughs> um, so so this this lends credence to the idea that there could be a black meteor or a white dawn meteor for all we know somewhere in the in the heart of winter and that this is something that is you know powering the others or that they're drawing power from or something wow yeah and you know he these beings come from outer space and and like land on the earth you know like the the great old ones uh they're not necessarily gods they're just like alien beings that are greater than us so uh they you know what's that that relore is an alien (laughs) (laughs) yeah pretty much yeah (laughs) storms end it's a spaceship yeah no we've already covered all this uh Perfect. perfect so here's another one guys um i'm freelancing a little bit here but since we're talking about this this is a real quick one this is from the mystery night do you want a clout in the ear there are no dragons. No, but there are eggs. The last dragon left a clutch of five, and they have more on Dragonstone, old ones from before the dance. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh, it uh, goes on. My brothers all have them too. Arion's looks as though it's made of gold and silver with veins of fire running through it. Mine is white and green, all swirly. So... Pretty cool. The old ones, dragon eggs. White and green makes sense. The eye color. White and green, right? There's your there's your green dragon stuff. So, e. very cool. All right. Well, there's just one more section here, and it's a pretty. I think it's a pretty short section. Let me get to. I want to get Silas. I want to give you a chance to expound a little more. I heard you start getting going on some of this. I've given you a lot to react to, so. Give me a, give me a couple more minutes here on 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 anything that we've brought up here. I've been t- doing a lot of the talking, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, um, 
I, I like where you're going with this idea of expelled souls, uh, because um, I've been thinking a lot about like the North myth- mythology that he's utilizing to um, show how bodies uh, or souls will leave bodies on death or even during sleep and take the form of animals or join into a werewood net. So if that did exist in the past uh, on some level, then uh, first off, I'm interested in like who those, those souls were, but also um, what would have caused them to, uh, to leave, to leave the trees. Uh, So I like what you're proposing here uh, that there may be uh, some, uh, some way that they were pushed out by fire. Uh, Other than that. Yeah. I, I, I like uh, I like how that ties it in. Yep, driven out by fire, and that makes sense because you know they don't like fire, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then if there's like, uh, uh, you know, like how? What my only question is like, how does Azor Ahai make it over to Westeros, and like why? You know, and what does it have to do with say Battle Isle of uh, of Old Town? Well, so so the logical answer, the Great Empire of the Dawn is this expanding civilization, and at some point they make contact with Westeros. Battle Isle is a Phoenician-like fortress city built just off the coast as a trading post, a fortified trading post, so they can exchange goods with the people of Westeros. Potentially, at some point, they come across the children of the forest or the green men, and you know they see a different version of you know, a new a new version of magic or something that they've not seen before. And so basically when Azor Ahai um, or the Bloodstone Emperor took power, there was already this connection established between, you know, because I don't think Azor Ahai just like built the fortress. You know what I mean? It would have already been there. And so when he took power, he already knew about Westeros. So he's got a choice. He can either sail to Westeros or ride his dragon to Westeros. I mean, he can go either way, but... At, you know, you need the ships to sail the people. So what I would picture is essentially once Azorahai takes power in the east, he then essentially invades Westeros. And that's the battle at Battle Isle, is him invading. You know, where would you invade? You would use the beachhead that your civilization already established and invade from there. So that's, that's how that works. And then at some point, he's got to get to uh, the God's Eye to, you know, do his dark magic ceremony, which is probably what makes sense. And something I was going to say earlier is that based on what we've seen in the show, a lot of people think the other's final end game might be the God's Eye. Like, where are they trying to get to? It's either Winterfell, but, you know, it seems like they're going to get past Winterfell. So it's like, well, if they get past Winterfell, where are they going? The next place to look is, is the God's Eye. So maybe that's the big, like, the Holy Grail. Because, you know, there's a big fucking black penis statue there with has great power. And anyone that lays both hands on its girth can summon, you know, the giants in the girth and they can wake the giants. The, the, the thing starts to wiggle a little bit. They wake the girth and I'll stop. Um, totally <laughs> totally inappropriate. Here. I'm just trying to make sure everyone's still awake. <laughs> so there we go. Now that I've wiggled the girth, somebody give me a gif. <laughs> make me a gif. Please, sir, can I be a gif? Uh-uh. let me queue up some patron names and by the way if you've signed up for patron in the last like two months 
I am a terrible slacker and have not processed your name and added your nickname in yet. That's something I want to catch up on in the next two weeks, uh, hopefully. So I apologize. Hopefully you're giving me money because you like my essays and not because you expect really prompt uh, service there. So, But I will get you. I'll get you soon. I usually update them in chunks, like about once a month or so, and I just sort of update the whole thing. But uh, in any case, I have had some nice uh, new patrons sign up in the last month, so I thank you all. I see all your messages, and I'll be responding to them shortly. And let's thank some folks. Some folks. We did the earthly avatars, so let's go on to some sacred order of the black hand. Oh, we're going to use my spoopiest cut here for this one. Crow Cages. This section is brought to you by the Sacred Order of the Black Hand. Sir Stoyles of the Long Branch, Seeker of Pale Blood. Count Magpie the Rude, the Dinky Giant, Hornblower of the Oslo Fjord. The Lady of Stellar Reason and Maleficence. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Black Room, sworn alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithomancer's Guild, Keeper of the Buzz. Poseidon of the Dragonglass Sea, the Orcish Priest. Ridiculous Ed Tolay, the Firebeard of the Dragonglass Forge, whose eyes are like pale morning mist. Westeros of the Cosmic Mill, the Unchained Uncle, host of bards. And Thomas Pappas, who needs a nickname still, but is my good friend. Those are the spirits of the old ones. That's them, like, screaming as they're sent out of the trees and into the cold night. That's what they sound like. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Sandrix. Could go straight to sleep to that. Uh, to- totes for show. <laughs> this is auto-tune. Yeah, I don't think auto-tune's going to help that one, buddy. <laughs> All right, so crow cages. We're going to talk about, we've been talking about the others, but of course, as I opened the essay with, the others and the Night's Watch both come from the Weirwoods. That's their common, their common point of origin from which they deviate. So we're going to talk about the Night's Watch in this one. This is going to be Arya and her chapter at Stony Sept. So in A Storm of Swords, Arya is a hostage of the Brotherhood Without Banners. Their golden squirrel, as the outlaw Greenbeard says, They've taken her to Stony Sept at the start of the scene, and the Old One's clue is hiding in the form of the town gates. But the lead-in has some interesting stuff about a guy with an antler hat, so we'll read the whole quote. Stony Sept was the biggest town Arya had seen since King's Landing, and Harwin said her father had won a famous battle here. The Mad King's men had been hunting Robert, trying to catch him before he could rejoin your father, he told her as they rode towards the gate. He was wounded, being tended to by some friends, when Lord Connington, the Hand, took the town with a mighty force and started searching house by house. Before they could find him, though, Lord Eddard and your grandfather came down on the town and stormed the walls. Lord Connington fought back fierce. They battled in the streets and alleys, even on the rooftops, and all the septons rang their bells so the small folk would know to lock their doors. 
Robert came out of hiding to join the fight when the bells began to ring. He slew six men that day, they say. One was Miles Mooton, a famous knight who'd been Prince Regar's squire. He would have slain the hand, too, but the battle never brought them together. Connington wounded your grandfather Tolly Sore, though, and killed Sir Dennis Aaron, the darling of the Vale. But when he saw the day was lost, he flew off as fast as the griffins on his shield. The Battle of the Bells, they called it after. Robert always said your father won it, not him. More recent battles had been fought here as well, Arya thought from the look of the place. The town gates were made of raw new wood. Outside the walls, a pile of charred planks remained to tell what happened to the old ones. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) So you can see how this one kind of pairs with the quote about the two halves of the switchback stair being rebuilt together, the old one and the new one. Here, instead of a wooden stair, we have wooden gates. And again, we have the old ones which have been burned, just as the burnt half of the stair was labeled the old one at the wall. Are these burned gates supposed to be symbolizing a burning weirwood too? Well, the answer is yes, since weirwood doors are kind of a thing. There's the black gate at the night fort that we just talked about, the weirwood and ebony moon face doors to the house of black and white, and the weirwood moon door at the Erie, which enables one to fly. Get it? Flying through the weirwood door. Symbolically, the weirwoods function as the doors of perception, if you will. Break on through to uh, more or less. Uh, so they're like the doorway to godlike knowledge and astral projection and all that business. The weirwoods also represent the doors of death, the entrance to the netherworld, or you might call it the astral plane. So yeah, burned old one's doors work pretty well as a weirwood symbol. I'll also add that a pile of charred planks sounds a bit like a funeral pyre. A lot like a funeral pyre, actually. The other notable thing is the story of the Battle of the Bells that precedes the line about the old ones. It's King Robert again. We seem to be seeing a lot of Robert today, don't we? That's no coincidence. He's a Baratheon and a storm lord turned storm king, and he loves antlered hats. And he was swinging that hammer all over the place here. It's not the only thing he was swinging around here. I'll get to that in a minute. Although he didn't burn those old one gates, that's sort of the symbolic implication. It's easier to see when you compare this quote to another old one's quote, involving a place that Robert definitely did destroy and burn. Theon moved to the bow for a better view. He saw the castle first, the stronghold of the Botleys, a lesser house sworn to his father. When he was a boy, it had been timber and wattle, but Robert Baratheon had raised that structure to the ground. Lord Sawain had built it in stone, for now a small square keep crowned the hill. Pale green flags drooped from the squat corner towers, the Botley banner, he knew, emblazoned with a shawl of silvery fish. Beneath the dubious protection of the fish-ridden little castle lay the village of Lordsport. Its harbors a swarm with ships. When he'd last seen Lordsport... It had been a smoking wasteland, the skeletons of burning galleys lying black on the stony shore like the bones of dead leviathans. The house is no more than broken walls and cold ash. After ten years, few traces of the war remained. The small folk had built new hovels with the stones of the old and cut fresh sod for their roofs. A new inn had risen beside the land, twice the size of the old one, with a lower story of cut stone and two upper stories of timber. The sept beyond had never been rebuilt, though. Only a seven-sided fountain foundation remained to show where it had stood. 
Robert Baratheon's fury had soured the Ironman's taste for the new gods, it would seem. Theon was more interested in ships than gods. Many of you will remember this quote from the Grey King and the Sea Dragon episode, because this quote is a great one for showing that the Sea Dragon myth refers, in part, to ships, as we see shipwrecks at Lordsport described as the bones of Leviathans. Today we're keying in on the Old One usage, and the fact that all the damage Theon remembers being done here was done by Robert Baratheon and his mighty Warhammer, which is of course a nod to Thor's Mjolnir, but more importantly, it's symbolic of a moon meteor hammer. The switchback stair, the Old One, was like a wooden thunderbolt and it caught on fire. And here at Lordsport, a storm lord with a thunder hammer burned and smashed everything, including that inn, the old one. That's why I look at the previous quote about Stony Sept, where we get a story about Robert Baratheon smashing things right before we're shown the burned and blackened old one's gates and see an implied connection. The thunderbolt that we keep seeing is the storm god's thunderbolt, the one that creates the burning tree, the one that conveys the fire of the gods to man. And so what we see in all these scenes is that the old ones are tied to that burning tree. And they may have been, like, literally tied to the burning tree and then killed, but, yeah, double, it's a wordplay. So, we know how the old ones are tied to the Weirwoods. It's uh, that Hammer of the Waters legend and the Moon Meteors. The Green Seers on the Isle of Faces were said to call down the Hammer of the Waters, which was a Moon Meteor, we think. But here it's Robert dropping the hammer, and with him comes Thoros and his flaming sword, too, the first one through the breach. In other words, I think this is another clue that the Green Seers, who called down the moon meteors, the flaming swords, were these horned lords, the green men, the old ones. Or as I mentioned earlier, it may be that their magic was used or stolen, or one green man turned against the rest. Or maybe it was Nissa Nissa, a female of the old ones race, instead of a child of the forest whose old ones magic was stolen by Azorahai. Still, we've Seen so many stagman Azor High figures to know that it's possible Azor High himself may be a naughty green man. And of course, we were just talking about that a bit earlier. So, while we're talking about ships, burning pyres, and the old ones, let me cut in a sort of random old ones quote from Davos's Battle of the Blackwater chapter, because it actually does fit here. As we know from studying the sea dragon metaphor, burning boats often function as symbols of the Weirwoods, the tree that burns with the fire of the gods. The cool part of the sea dragon metaphor is that the weirwood is like a ship that the green seer can use to sail the cosmos, if you will. You guys remember all that stuff. So, weirwoods are like boats because they sail the universe. They're like doors because they allow you to enter different realms. They're like stairways because they allow man to reach into the heavens. They're like bridges because they span the river of time. They're like coffins and tombs because dead people live in them. They're like a rising mushroom cloud of ash because Yggdrasil is a great ash tree, because the roots of the weirwoods connect like a fungal network, and because they called down the moon meteors that made the mushroom clouds. Everyone got all that? Good. There'll be a quiz later. Versatile things, those weirwoods. There's more to come. Anyway, at the Battle of the Blackwater, we got some of the best burning ship symbolism anywhere, because they all burnt with that treacherous green fire known as wildfire. Between the flashing oars of Scepter and Faithful, Davos saw a thin line of galleys drawn across the river, the sun glinting off the gold paint that marked their holes. He knew those ships as well as he knew his own. When he'd been a smuggler, he'd always felt safer knowing whether the sail on the horizon marked a fast ship or a slow one, 
and whether her captain was a young man hungry for glory or an old one serving out his days. Uh, ooh, the warhounds called. So right after the old one captain is mentioned, a horn is sounded. The phrase, an old one serving out his days, kind of sounds like it's talking about the Night's Watch, which fits with the horn blowing. And of course, it's the Lannister ships that Davos is looking at, which introduced the wildfire to the battle with all its fiery green seer symbolism. So sure, why not an old one as captain? As you probably remember, the wildfire basically takes the ravenous reader's green sea metaphor and sets it on fire. So this is really just another way of talking about Azor High setting the weirwood net on fire. Any old ones captaining these ships will soon find themselves in a sea of green fire captaining a burning ship. At its most basic level, the interpretation here is the basic one that we've already well established. The old ones are green seers who live in the weirwood and get burned. The burning ships and the towering pillar of green fire that is loosed at the battle is very comparable to the burning staircase or any of the other Ground Zero bonfires. Uh, let's turn away from burning ships as weird metaphors and turn back to the burning doors and return to Arya's chapter at Stony Sept. Because it turns out those burned Old Ones gates were just a warm-up. There are more Old Ones coming, that's right. And they seem to be members of the Night's Watch. In the market square at the town's heart stood a fountain in the shape of a leaping trout, spouting water into a shallow pool. Women were filling pails and flagons there. A few feet away, a dozen iron cages hung from the creaking wooden posts. Crow cages, Arya knew. The crows were mostly outside the cages, splashing in the water or perched atop the bars. Inside were men. Lem reined up scowling. What's this now? Justice, answered a woman at the fountain. What, did you run short a hempen rope? Was this done at Sir Wilbert's decree, asked Tom. A man laughed bitterly. The lions killed Sir Wilbert a year ago. His sons are all off with the young wolf getting fat in the west. You think they give a damn for the likes of us? It was the mad huntsman caught these wolves. Wolves, Arya went cold. Rob's men and my father's. She felt drawn toward the cages. The bars allowed so little room that the prisoners could neither sit nor turn. They stood naked, exposed to sun and rain and wind. The first three cages held dead men. Carrion crows had eaten out their eyes, yet the empty sockets seemed to follow her. So to begin with, this is obvious last hero math. We've got 12 crow cages that contain wolves who fought in the army of the Starks. Arya is the 13th. She's the Night Wolf and the Wolf Girl. A cool bit of foreshadowing here. She's going to get a head start on her Faceless Man training by offering these prisoners water right before her companions give them a clean death. Then later in the House of Black and White, she serves somebody who wishes to die the apparently poisoned water of the Dark Pool, which kind of merges those two ideas. In any case, Arya is the 13th wolf here, and the fact that these wolves are in crow cages really locks them down as symbolic Night's Watch brothers. Not only are they crows, of course, they're also prisoners, just as the members of the Watch are never allowed to abandon their service at the Wall and frequently arrive at the Wall as a result of being convicted of a crime. The first three cages have dead bodies, and the crows have given them a bit of weirwood stigmata by eating out their eyes. One also recalls the story of the bad little boy who was struck by lightning 
and who had his eyes eaten out by crows, a story told to Bran, which is symbolic of the Odin-like green seer awakening. These dead crows are ready to be raised from the dead. All of these prisoners were caught by the Mad Huntsman, who's a green man figure in his own right. This suggests a possible scenario for the green zombie ritual. Perhaps the green men capture and execute the last hero's companions, only to raise them as the green zombie watch. That's one scenario that I think is in play. But we might also see the Mad Huntsman, emphasis on mad, as evil Azor High, the rebellious green man, killing other green men who later become green zombies. There's really a lot of very related, sort of similar possibilities here. So we'll, we'll try to suss those out as we continue to explore these ideas and more Old Ones quotes in the future. Because, no, we're not going to get to all the Old Ones quotes today. Never you fear. There's actually a bunch more still. <laughs> Anyways, so picking back up with the scene. The fourth man in the row stirred as she passed. Around his mouth, his ragged beard was thick with blood and flies. They exploded when he spoke, buzzing around her head. Water. The word was a croak. Please, water. Uh, flies exploded when he spoke? Yeah, those are moon meteors. Uh, carry on. The man in the next cage opened his eyes at the sound. Hear, he said. Hear me. An old man he was. His beard was gray and his scalp was bald and mottled brown with age. There was another dead man beyond the old one, a big red-bearded man with a rotting gray bandage covering his left ear and part of his temple. But the worst thing was between his legs, where nothing remained but a crusted brown hole crawling with maggots. So, sorry to keep that last line in. Sorry to make you read that, Silas. But the castration is an important part of the Horned Lord mythology, as Crowfood's daughter plans to explain in an upcoming video, Sneak Peek, on her Disputed Lands channel. I know that's going to be a good one. Uh, and the Night's Watch brothers and the others both have this symbolic castration in common because they are both brotherhoods of men who have their fertility taken away in the sense that they are forbidden to sire children or the others may not be able to sire children. And as we've seen, both the others and the brothers are symbolic of green men in winter who have basically lost their green, or they've lost their fertility. So now, here in this crow cage, we find one of the old ones, a member of this little symbolic Night's Watch green zombie crew. That's great. It's very like finding the wrong-smelling jailer, Garth, among the dozen people at the Wolf's Den at White Harbor. Garth was the old one, if you recall. Ergo, we may have had some of the green men themselves in The Last Hero's Company. And if you notice, the old one in the Croak Age has skin which is mottled brown with age. That's a very sneaky way of giving him dappled brown skin, because mottled and dappled are pretty much the same. And of course, uh, dappled brown skin is the skin of the children of the forest, whose skin imitates that of a deer. The Lengi have medium golden brown skin too, so... It may be that the green men actually had skin that looks more like that of the children. I think Sir Nunos would probably look cooler with, like, dark brown skin anyways than, like, actual green skin so he looks like the Hulk or something. But I don't know. I guess you can fill that in how you want to. Returning to the quote, Arya sees a fat man cruelly crammed into the cage. She speaks to him, asking whose men they were. At the sound of her voice, the fat man opened his eyes skin around them was so red they looked like boiled eggs floating in a dish of blood water 
a drink. Just jumping in here to say, uh, moon meteors, eggs floating in blood, which are also eyes. Yeah, those are cooking moon egg symbols, I would say. A swallow, the fat one called down. Have mercy, boy, a swallow. The old one slid an arm up to grasp the bars. The motion made its cage swing violently. Water, grasped the one with the flags in his beard. She looked at their filthy hair and scraggly beards and redded eyes, at their dry, cracked, bleeding lips. Wolves, she thought again. Like me. Was this her pack? How could they be Rob's men? She wanted to hit them. She wanted to hurt them. She wanted to cry. They all seemed to be looking at her, the living and the dead alike. The old man has squeezed three fingers out between the bars. Water, he said. Water. So Martin actually doubles up on the old one label for this prisoner here. And that makes three old ones usages in this chapter in total, including the old ones burned gates. All the wolves in the crow cages have red eyes and bleeding lips, and this weirwood stigmata is exactly what we should expect to see here, as the green zombie, of course, calls for weirwood-assisted resurrection for the last hero's dozen companions. The cages, suspended as they are in space, are also a symbol of the weirwoods as a prison and a trap for green seers, with the suspension simulating the flying of the green seers. In other words, the green seer's body is tightly pinioned like the men in the crow cages, but his spirit flies, and the men in the crow cages are suspended in the air and covered in flies. <laughs> is this a joke Martin intended to make? I don't know, but it's funny in a dark sort of way. You will never walk again, Bran, but you will fly. Oh, oh wait, uh, you will be covered in flies. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> right? <laughs> Oops. A final note on this chapter. We find another rebuilt inn, just like at Lordsport, where we had an old one inn. And wouldn't you know it, there's a green man here. On the east side of the market square stood a modest inn with whitewashed walls and broken windows. Half its roof had burned off recently, but the hole had been patched over. Above the door hung a wooden shingle painted as a peach with a big bite taken out of it. They dismounted at the stables, sitting catty-corner, and Greenbeard bellowed for the grooms. The buxom red-haired innkeep howled with pleasure at the sight of them, then promptly set to tweaking them. Greenbeard, is it? Or Greybeard? Mother, take mercy. When did you get so old? <laughs> <laughs> He's an old green man, get it? And uh, we were just talking about the green-to-gray cycle, of course, in the chat. Um, you know, you have green boys and gray beards. That's a phrase you see a lot, particularly applied to the Night's Watch. Um, gray and green, murky soup of maiden pools, defiled pool. Um, you know, dead flesh is gray and green. Uh, like Stoneheart, I think, is gray and green. So there's a lot of stuff going on with that. And, of course, um, Crowfood's daughter talks about the Garth Gray King cycle, which is basically just Oak and Holly King, you know, reinterpreted. So... Here's Greenbeard turning gray. How'd he get so old, right? That's kind of what we're talking about. Old green men. So in any case, inns can also be used to symbolize weirwoods. That's right. Add inns to the list. And we've seen that before with the inn at the Trident, which used to span the river like a weir, which gets renamed the Orphan Inn when it's full of children. And think of weirwoods full of children of the forest. Uh, it's painted white like a weirwood. 
It's called the Gallows Inn when Tywin comes there and hangs a bunch of people, including the innkeep Masha Heddle, who has vivid weirwood stigmata due to the sour leaf she always chews. And of course, hanging people from the tree is, is Odin stuff. So inns are well established as weirwood symbols. And here, the, one of the main things is that we often find a Nissa Nissa person as the innkeep. That's, that's usually the giveaway. So, for example, Masha Heddle, she's got weirwood stigmata and she gets hung on the tree. And then the innkeep here at the Peach, which, by the way, isn't really an inn, of course. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, kind of is, but uh, she has Nissa Nissa symbolism, too. She's a redhead, as you can see, and her name is Tansy. But Tansy Tea is also called Moon Tea. So she's a moon-associated redhead, and we know what that means. She likes to sleep with Greenbeard, whom she immediately begins teasing here. Greenbeard himself is turning gray and old, which, again, that's kind of the point. Old ones, as green men. You may remember the Peaches of Immortality from Sun Wukong, which we talked about in the Tyrion Targaryen episode. And you may recall from that story or elsewhere that Peaches are often given this association with immortality. That fits with the Weirwood, of course, which extends the lives of the Green Seers long beyond their mortal days. So it's an inn called the Peach. An interesting tidbit to note here. Uh, Robert Baratheon almost certainly hid right here at the Peach during the Battle of the Bells. John Connington, recalling the battle, thinks that at the end they had the usurper hidden in a brothel. I'm sorry, this is my John Connington voice. At the end they had the usurper hidden in a brothel. That's, I gotta work on it, but anyways. There's a memory of this at the Peach. Um, I simply have to quote it too. It's, it's really just too good. They say King Robert fucked my mother while he was here, back before the battle. Not that he didn't have all the other girls, too, but Leslian says he liked my ma the best. The girl did have hair like the old king's, Arya thought, a great thick mock of it, as black as coal. That doesn't mean anything, though. Gendry has the same kind of hair. Lots of people have black hair. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one, right? <laughs> and, of course, a second later... Uh, Bella offers to, to fuck Gendry, um, which almost happens but doesn't. And that would have been incest, of course. And that would have been horrible. We could have almost had incest in the story, guys. Anyways, that last line is the giveaway. This is indeed one of Robert's bastard children. Um, so think about that. The inn represents the Weirwood, and one of the children that we find there is a child of Garth. Greenbeard may have also fathered children here as many times as he's been through. And even the simple idea of Robert or Greenbeard staying here is suggestive of green men living inside the Weirwood. Finally, what Arya does at the Peach is noteworthy. First, she prevents and then almost causes Gendry to sleep with his half-sister Bella here, but that's a different story. Arya first gets a bath, where the maid scrubbed Arya's back with a stiff, bristly brush that almost took her skin off. Then she's dressed in the famous acorn dress, which, in her own words, makes her look like a tree. Or like she's inside a tree, which the inn represents. Then after she falls asleep later, she enters the wolf dream, leading Nymeria's pack across the riverlands, feasting on the flesh of the horse they killed, and howling at the moon when it comes out. So that again fits the inn as a symbolic weirwood. Arya enters it, dreams, and then skin changes animals, just as Bran does. Her using the power of the weirwood dream to lead the wolf pack is basically a repeat symbolic depiction of Arya as the Stark last hero leading the watch at the crow cages outside. One might even imagine Arya's dream wolf pack as the resurrected wolves from the crow cages. 
Now we can see why the old burned gates to this town were labeled as the old ones. A dozen wolves and crow cages, symbolic of the last hero's green zombies, including an old one, and they're being hung and killed right in front of a weirwood symbol, the inn, which is also labeled as being tied to the old ones. It's a perfect mock-up of my proposed green zombie ceremony, where the dozen are killed and resurrected before a weirwood tree. That seems to be what's going on here. And the old ones are everywhere. Let's finish. That was my Quint. And the old ones are everywhere. So let's finish with a great clue about the connection between the old ones and the Starks. We started our train of old ones quotes with Ned's gods being the old ones, the nameless, faceless gods of the Greenwood they shared with the vanished children of the forest. So this is a good way to close the episode. The Starks are very much allied with the Night's Watch, both tactically and in terms of symbolism. And we've seen a lot of good last hero math applied to the statues of the Kings of Winter in the crypts. Bearing that in mind, check out Ned's conversation with Pycelle at King's Landing in A Game of Thrones. My pardons, Lord Eddard. You did not come to hear foolish meanderings of a summer forgotten before your father was born. Forgive an old man his wanderings, if you would. Mind you like swords, I do fear. The old ones go to rust. Ah, and here is our milk. The serving girl placed the tray between them, and Pycelle gave her a smile. Sweet child. He lifted a cup, tasted, nodded. Thank you. You may go. So first of all, Pycelle is comparing old minds to old swords, and saying the old ones go to rust. But when one mentions rusty old swords in the presence of Ned Stark, descendant of the Kings of Winter, one naturally thinks of the iron long swords placed in the laps of the Kings of Winter statues, which, of course, all but the most recent have gone to rust. So associating the original Kings of Winter with the Old Ones makes perfect sense, of course, because based on our research today, the Old Ones, the Green Men, seem most strongly connected to the Others and the Green Zombie Night's Watch. The Starks are tied to both those things. So again, finding whisperings of the Old Ones in the Winterfell crypts makes perfect sense. And it's another place tied to Brandon the Builder. The other notable thing in this scene is the ice milk Pycelle is serving Ned. When we looked at this scene in detail previously, it seemed to us that the iced milk they were drinking and the milk of the poppy that they were talking about were both stand-in symbols for weirwood paste. Just as Pycelle serves Ned ice milk here, he's the one to serve Ned milk of the poppy after Ned breaks his leg fighting Jamie's men in the streets of King's Landing, which then launches Ned into the Tower of Joy Dream. Thus, Pycelle, with his mind labeled an old one, becomes a psychopomp figure serving a stark hero, the food of the gods, which will make him dream. Pycelle is an old man who commands small children to bring the milk, and that compares well to Bloodraven, who has children of the forest serve bran weirwood paste. And the idea of iced milk also implies ice transformation. So, when you're talking about kings of winter... We're getting back at the idea of the Kings of Winter and the others being rooted in the Stark bloodline and in Green Seers. So there you go, guys. That's the episode for today. You wanted it. You needed it. Now you got it. Yeah, um, I really enjoyed um, a lot of the parallels you raised and a lot of the questions and your others theory. Um, I'm going to have to go through and re-listen again because sometimes I get a little bit distracted while I'm painting. But um, <laughs> I am very excited about 
this train of thought is, I think, my overall takeaway. This is some heavy weirwood ritual stuff here at the Crow Cages, isn't it, Silas? Definitely. Uh, I like that you caught that uh, there was 12 and then she's the 13th wolf. Um, You know, that kind of stuff I I glaze over, but uh, I'm always amazed when it's pointed out to me. So that was a nice little uh, random and yet, um, you know, big clue. Yeah, that's Arya's most common role is uh, is Last Hero. She does Last Hero a lot. Yeah. So. And you can see, like, in, in her scenes, like in the Hall Godswood, you know, she goes into the Godswood, and takes strength from the gods, and then goes out and, along with Jaken, you know, murders a bunch of people and sets the Starks free. So it's very like the Last Hero getting the help of the children and then going and... Even her, in fact, her loosing the Starks from that dungeon is very much like resurrecting the green zombies. You're like taking them out of the underworld and, and making them your allies. So good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And I, I like the whole thing about how they're they're imprisoned. Like they're so tightly in those crow cages, they can't move. So they're literally like blood raven. They're like they're pinioned, <laughs> but they're but they're also flying because they're suspended. So Yeah. Or kind of like the uh this was the 79 or 77 uh, people like buried watching uh, to the north in the wall. A little bit reminiscent of that as well, like captured way up high, uh, not able to move, not able to leave. Yeah, so I wonder if those, those 79 sentinels, they might be models of the others. Because they're like Night's Watchmen who got locked in the ice and frozen and sort of betrayed the other ones. So I'll have to think about that more. I know they have, you know, spears like tree trunks and they're, quote, planted in the ice like plants. Um, so they're, they're definitely like frozen green men. So, yeah, I think, I think they probably are others. What house, what house was that from? Um, Riswell. And Riswell has, oh, a black fiery horse sigil. A black horse with a red mane on orange and black. Uh, let's see. What was Howland Reed up to with the Isle of Faces, Tony asks. So, that's a damn good question. Talking to the green men. And that's why we haven't seen him, is because Martin doesn't want to show us the Green Men yet. Uh, but when we get Howland Reed, RLJ is not the only thing he's going to tell us about, possibly. Hopefully we'll find out and get some Green Man corroboration. Raven Salix asks, uh, so is the dragon locked in ice basically an other? Well, we've been calling him a good other this whole time, Raven. Um, and it's kind of like the impregnation of... The idea is, so the dragon locked in ice is, is symbolic of Night's King giving his fiery seed to Night's Queen. And she then births others. So this is, that's basically a different way of talking about Azora High's fire sort of pushing out the others. But it's, it's, it's more of a creation act instead of an eviction there. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that's all related, but essentially the dragon locked in ice is supposed to become an other, but then he isn't. So we find him in the other, inside the ice, just like the green men who became others. But, you know, he's like rescued in time. So that's why he's like an ice and fire 
unity, I would say. What I'm interested is in the connection between the green zombies and the others. I've talked about that scene where Bannon on the Night's Watch freezes to death at the same time that uh, Gilly gives birth to Monster in the loft above. So you've got a Night's Watchman freezing and then an, an other baby being born at the same time. And then when Bannon is burned on the pyre, his, it looks like his body is sitting up and waking in the fire. So to me, it seems like that is showing us how first the others are created and then the green zombies are created as a response. But they're really tied to sort of the same event. You know, like, I'm not sure how this all works exactly. But there's a couple of cool possibilities here. For sure. Uh, Sword in the Darkness says, Could it be that as a face carved into a tree, a child of the forest is sacrificed? As a face is carved into a tree, a child of the forest is sacrificed so the tree can act as a conduit. Between the tree's newly opened eyes and the net. Yeah, it's possible. Um, It could be a green man that's sacrificed to make that happen too. And that's kind of what I've been talking about. Like when I say Azor High kills green men to invade the weirwood net. That's the whole idea is that like giving a tree a face allows people to go in and you've got to wet that face with blood sacrifice. And that would be the green man that you're killing. So, yeah, that, that's very possible, Sword in the Darkness. And it looks like another tip jar. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yes, we will get a lot more answers in the Winds of Winter for sure. I think we'll find out a lot more about this, about this stuff. The green men... Zombie Night's Watch. We'll see John come back to life. We maybe will even get the Isle of Faces, although that could be in the last book. But, you know... It's tough we to say. Sh- we'll get Howland Reed somewhere in there, too. So he'll have experience with Isle of Faces, Tower of Joy, the Neck, its magic. I mean, it's going to tie a lot of this together. Yep. That's one of the exciting things about this theory is, like, we're, we're going to get to find out if there are stag boys. And I want to reiterate that there might not be, okay? This whole thing about horned lords, we could just be talking about the oldest race of green seers. They could just be taller children. They might not have antlers. The antlers could be the headdress that they wear, like many shamans do. Um, and George is just using the Cernunos image there. But the point is, there is some other race of old green seers who are not the children. They're different. They're the green men. And whatever they are, um, they might just be the oldest first men. I don't know. Um, we'll, we'll have to see. But there's something, and they're on the Isle of Faces, and we're going to get to see what they are. So, Silas, uh, give, me, give me your links. Tell everyone where you can find you. Yeah, godsofterror.tumblr.com is where I've got a lot of essays uh, on the connection between uh, Lovecraft and George R. R. Martin and uh, how he interweaves it into the stories. And I'm doing a new series on uh, Nordic zombies and uh, how that mythology is used, too. So there's one part out. There'll be more out as soon as I find any time at all. <laughs> and you can ASAP find me on Twitter, too. What's that? As, as, as ASAP as possible. <laughs> yeah, what's your Twitter? Uh, it's Loki underscore president. Excellent. Sandrixian. Um, I'm Sanrixian, and you can find me at Sanrixian on Twitter, and my web store is Sanrixian.com. I, um, I have got a bunch of prints up there for sale. Um, I think I still have three or four calendars left. I made a bad math mistake, because that's not my specialty. 
So if you still are interested in one, there's a couple left. Um, and yeah. There it is. Bye, guys.